Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, sport? I believe we may have lost sport. <laughs> I'm very good scout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> we, we, we've we been having some Wi-Fi Champ. trouble, so if Andrew does drop out, just to let listeners be aware of that. On my end, it sounds like you're the one having troubles, but I know for a fact that it's me. So, like, you're coming through <laughs> and you're like, Sport? Like, no, it's, it, it, this is me. I'm doing this. I'm working on my Vin Diesel impression for the episode that we're doing. It's very convincing. Um, but that's okay. If we do lose Andrew, we have two fantastic backup guests joining us. True. We're kicking off a season. We're calling it Bird Watching. Brad Bird's first three movies have entered the 250 again, thanks to the reshuffle that took place earlier this year. We'll be looking at uh, The Iron Giant. We'll be looking at The Incredibles and Ratatouille. This week, we're looking at, uh, this week we're looking at The Iron Giant, and we have two fantastic guests. First of all, The Amazing Graham Day. How you doing, cowboy? Uh, I'm doing all right. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a tough couple of days. We'll talk more about that later. Keep the chin up, Buck. And the sensational, sensational Deirdre Malumbi. How you doing, D? What's up, Scout? I'm doing very well. You know, I was so excited for bird watching season that I've already seen all three movies, and I'm probably going to rewatch <laughs> Incredibles and Ratatouille before we do those episodes again. I. I'm so excited for chatting about these films. Is Ratatouille the other one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they are they are arguably classics. As soon as they came into the list, I was like, yes, let's do them. We haven't done a director's season since we did uh, Francis Ford Coppola back in March. That was a short one. I figured this will be a short one as well. It'll be nice to talk about. Before we jump on in, actually, D, you mentioned watching that those first three movies. Now, obviously, he went on, he did Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. He did, obviously, Tomorrowland. He did The Incredibles 2. But what's your pocket take on, on Brad Bird as a director? Um, I really like his stuff. I just think that he... He really gets popcorn, like entertainment cinema. Um, but he also like is able to deliver on like the heart and the feels as well. So I quite like him as a director. I just think he's very solid. He's very reliable. Yeah, I love his stuff. I remember kind of the first time that I really started looking out for his name was because of the Iron Giant. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I remember seeing the Iron Giant and then watching a Simpsons episode and seeing his name in the credits and being like, oh my God, is that the same, is same Brad Bird? And then I realised it was. And then when uh, they were when they were talking about The Incredibles coming out and I saw that it was Brad Bird, I was like, oh my God, it's Brad Bird. And everyone was like, what? what, what? They didn't even get it. They didn't get it. Uh, so I, I really like his work as a director. Um, I enjoyed the, uh, the Mission Impossible installments that he has helmed. Uh, so yeah, I really like, yeah, I like his work. He's good. <laughs> he's like he's a, he's an amazing kind of director to talk about in large part because he's a director who has transitioned from animation into live action and back to animation as well mm-hmm. and who's like found you know he's very interested in both the, the actual like craft and technique but also very interested in storytelling um and again his movies work in large part because of the synthesis of all that but graham what about yourself do you have like a big brad bird take a big bird take <laughs> uh i don't know if it's big but like yeah i i, I completely agree with the um He's a phenomenal director, and I don't think there's... I, I, I suppose this would be the big take, uh, or the hot take. Uh, I don't think he's done a bad film or anything. Some people might say Tomorrowland. Uh, I think that's maybe, like, one of my favourites, actually, of his. 
because... What would be the closest thing to a bad film that he's done? Yeah, Tomorrowland, I think. Yeah. It's the closest thing, because it wasn't commercially successful compared to the rest of his films. Uh, but And it, also, if we're being honest, Tomorrowland is arguably where you get ground zero for a lot of the stuff we'll probably end up talking about Bird when we talk about Incredibles, when we talk about Ratatouille. Mm. The subtext that many people read into his work kind of becomes super text when you get to Tomorrowland. Mm. Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, but I, I don't know what it is. I suppose it's because Tomorrowland for me was very 80s action adventure where the kid was at the center of it all and had a really cool mentor in the shape of George Clooney, who I can give or take him sometimes, but I thought he was effortlessly charming in that one as opposed to... I I, I don't know. It's just, it's just a weird kind of take I have. of I really enjoyed Tomorrowland like a lot, and I don't know why. It's hard to articulate. But... Yeah, I mean, there's also Ratatouille. I haven't, I'm not, unlike D, I haven't watched it yet. But it's been a long time. It's been, God, I think maybe six or six, seven years since the last time I watched Ratatouille, like, properly. Yeah. And I can't wait to get back to it. That's one of the actual reasons why I was so excited for joining this talk was to rewatch, to have a reason to rewatch Ratatouille. And then obviously the Iron Giant. There's obvious reasons why I love it for people who know me. And I was watching it today and burst into tears like like the it there's never doesn't make me cry like i always cry at him and yeah I, I i will also admit i'm very curious to check out ratatouille ratatouille is a movie i liked a lot and i remember liking a lot but i think it's really grown in people's estimation of birds filmography uh, and so it's one that i'm very curious to go back to and discover if i i really secretly loved it all along just very quickly in terms of of introducing kind of brad bird we talked about this i think we've talked about the incredibles too but just to give a very quick rundown Brad Bird, kind of something of a child prodigy. Uh, very famously into animation as a child. His parents would take him to Disney movies. Uh, they'd take him to go and see Disney movies multiple times. He went to see The Jungle Book when he was a kid. And he remembered coming out of that and like asking his parents, how do I do that? And they're like, so what you do is you take several still images and you just flip through them and they create the illusion of movies. Like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I mean. I mean, how do I do that? How do I make a movie that gets released in theaters? And so they said, well, look, you need to find somebody and then impress them and just like, you know, send your samples off and, and tell these people that that's what you want to do and ask them how they did it. So he produces, I believe it's Hare and Tortoise. Uh, I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. Uh, but it's this animation he makes when he's 14 years old. But anyway, so yeah, so Bert mails off this thing, sends it directly to Disney and they invent an internship for him. They create a whole new position for him, something that's never been done before. They bring him in. And he almost immediately becomes incredibly bitterly disillusioned with Disney. He arrives in the late <laughs> 70s in 1978. He's working in what they used to call the rat's nest, uh, populated by artists that they referred to as rats. Because he's a bird. Yeah. Nah. Hey. <laughs> hey. But he, uh, he learns from the best, just as the, like all the old men as they're leaving Disney. And he finds himself really bored by the work that Disney's putting out. This is around the time they're doing stuff like The Fox and the Hound. They're doing The Rescuers. Mm. Uh, they're doing these movies that are intensely profitable, but like creatively bankrupt for the studio. Um, and he, Wait, what? At the age of, at this stage, about 18 years old. Yes, Graham, I'm sorry to shatter your illusions about Disney during the 1970s and 80s. No, I do remember that being a rougher... Creatively bankrupt? Yeah, but Look, it was, I relatively speaking, it was a rougher era for... Disney compared to what came before and what would come, come after. after. I'd agree with that. Yeah. yeah. But creatively, Fox and the Hound is big. Fox, Fox and the Hound is amazing. Graham. The rescuers. One. Graham. Graham. I'm next year to be saying rescuers down under is an awful film. Okay. 
Anyway, let, let's let's just let, okay. I'm going to put this another way. In the mind of Brad Bird, the director who we are covering today and for the next two weeks, this was a creatively bankrupt period at Disney. He made no secret of this. He went into meetings and he was like, why the hell are we making this crap? What the hell is the point of this? Why are you hiring talented young artists and like directors and all these people who've like actually studied animation, who care passionately about the form, who have strong visions, who want to push the medium forward, if all you're going to do is just recycle anthropomorphic animals like you've done time and time again. Apparently at that meeting, the head of the studio says, well, look, if you feel that way about it, why don't you just quit? And he's like, no, actually, what happens is if you feel that way about it, you should fire me. And the guy's like, you're really forcing my hand here and basically fires Bird from Disney in 1978. Bird, not to be put down at all, goes off, meets a bunch of like-minded animators. Graham is rolling his eyes at the subject of this no, miniseries. It's ridiculous. I'm like, not rolling my eyes. I'm generally not rolling my eyes. But like he, one fox and the hound um, <laughs> does 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 not kind of like make make a um, you know a, any anyway. Sorry, it's 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 it like if you compare it to that run in the nineties, like yeah, exactly, from, yeah, from like Little Mermaid, Be- Beauty yeah. and the Beast, uh, Lion King, like and and oh, and it just kind of goes on and on and on until like Graham. Pixar. That's comparatively speaking, well, not, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I honestly didn't roll my eyes. Sorry, sorry. Okay, let's just okay, let's just actually. Here's an interview with him from October 1999. The whole corporate outlook, in a nutshell, was let's not screw this up, Bradbury calls. That regime refused to share power with younger talent, avoided risk taking, and put every aspect of feature filmmaking through a blanderizer. Blanderizer, by the way, is his word, not mine. You can not call it a blander. Mm. I, I guess it was just like first idea, best idea. I feel like he didn't workshop that one with the room. But blanderizer it, is maybe better. I don't know. Okay. Um, anyway, he says you can see the results of that <laughs> philosophy in the 1981 Disney film, The Fox and the Hound. Bird says the only part of that movie that comes alive is the bear fight, which was left the way its gifted animators drew it because the release date loomed. They didn't have time to ruin that one sequence, Bird says, as they did the rest of the movie. So you can see how Bird is maybe not the most diplomatic uh, company man imaginable. After he gets fired from Disney, he basically goes off and he animates a show reel for Will Eisner's The Spirit himself. He sends it around Hollywood. He sends it to directors like Francis Ford Coppola, to Spielberg, to George Lucas, to all these kind of like, again, the movie brats. Here's like here's an excerpt from the letter he sent to Spielberg, right? Just to put this in context so we're well aware of how Brad Bird feels about animation at this moment in time, just in case it's unclear from everything that I've said to this point. This is the rough reel I talked to you about. Myself and a few others spent about five months on it in our spare time. It's very rough due to the cost of animation, therefore we had to make a few concessions. We all feel that animation is the pits right now, that nobody's done anything for the past 20 years in character animation that's decent. We all work in the industry as, and I quote, quotation mark, professionals, but we have never worked on anything that we would consider to be, quote, professional. We have many projects that we're aching to do, a few which shown here, and we're waiting to be given the chance. We think it could make a great feature cartoon. Thank you for your time. Spielberg apparently sees this and he's like, we're not going to develop that. 
but I'm doing this show called the uh, called Amazing Stories, and I want you to come in and do an animated episode of this live action show. He comes in, he does That's Family Dog. It's such a massive success, it gets spun off into its own TV show. Uh, he doesn't work on the TV show, but that becomes like ground zero for a whole bunch of like late 80s animation talent who go on to become part of the Disney Renaissance, for example. They go on to work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They go on to work on An American Tale. Spielberg himself, apparently through his connection with Bird, is invigorated through animation. He goes on to produce the 90s Renaissance at, you know, at Warner Brothers, Freakazoid, Animaniacs, Animaniacs yeah. that, yeah. Looney Tunes, sorry, um... Tiny Toons. Yeah, all that kind of comes through like Spielberg and Bird, uh, Spielberg and Bird in the early 80s being like, yeah, we should really kind of connect and make this work together. Um, Bird goes on, has, as Dee mentions, he works on The Simpsons. He's responsible for the character design of uh, Sideshow Bob. Hmm. He designs Sideshow Bob. He directs two episodes. He also does the video for The Bartman. Uh, which he describes as the hardest thing he has ever worked on is the three-minute video for The Bartman, mm. because he was working with a Hungarian art studio that had never even seen The Simpsons oh, gosh. Uh, when they were animating <laughs> that music video. So he was like, yep, most difficult thing I've ever done. But Bird ends up bouncing around Hollywood for a couple of years off the back of that, and he ends up, through coincidence, working at Turner Animation, um, which is one of the big animation houses. He's developing a pitch there called Raygun, uh, and his idea is that animation doesn't need to be for kids. Animation is an art form. The Japanese see it as an art form that adults can go and enjoy these movies. I want to make like a science fiction, like private detective cowboy animated or rated short. And Turner, who are like desperately trying to compete with Disney, are like, uh, sure, why not? Uh, and then basically it ends up they get bought by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers drop Raygun almost as soon as they hear of its existence. <laughs> but they draft him onto the project that will become the Iron Giant. Uh, and the the Iron Giant kind of has this interesting path to to kind of like to fame as well. Do Graham or do, do you guys know much about like the 90s animation boom outside of Disney? Um, you know, I was reading a little bit about... Um Warner's animation, because I think that that's kind of quite interesting in and of itself, because basically before the Iron Giant, you had um, Space Jam was obviously a big hit yeah. for them. And then uh, Quest for Camelot, which I yes. do actually remember seeing in the 90s and quite enjoying. Um, I did not remember that one. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. Um, it's uh, oh, there. Sorry, I was wondering where my other cat is and I just saw him <laughs> peeking at around the corner. <laughs> So I was like, okay, good. There he is. Um, I like when they're in my eye shot. But anyway, um, so both Quest for Camelot and uh, The Iron Giant ended up kind of being um, flops for Warner Brothers, which is a huge shame. I mean, basically, the issues was um, I don't think they quite knew how to market either of those movies, but particularly there was issues around the Iron Giant. Um, and even if you look at like kind of like the, the trailer for the Iron Giant is OK, but if you look at the yeah. movie poster, like the whole idea of it is that it's like kind of tying into like 50 sci-fi movies, like it came from outer space and stuff like that. And kids like wouldn't really no. get that. And I don't think an adult would see it as clever enough to be like, I definitely have to bring my kid to this. So just they were kind of all over the place. Mm. And then what's interesting, I think, in regards to the Warner Brothers animation story is that outside of television, you know, the likes of um, Animaniacs and, you know, spin-offs of that, they haven't really done anything movie-wise since um, outside of that kind of time in the 90s when they were in their heyday. And then, like, you look at something like like Space Jam, A Legacy, 
and um you know <laughs> ready player one and how those movies are just like totally kind of cashing in on like everything that came before and it all gets very kind of cynical and sad basically <laughs> they're all kind of workshopped and and they focus they groups. um yeah. and focus groups and the algae rhythm nice well done, Andrew. Thank we you. appreciate the, the Don Cheadle reference. Sorry. No, no, no. It's just, um, I know that's during the 2000s and uh, up until now, what Warner's kind of started to do was they weirdly focused on, well, not weirdly, they focused mainly on DC properties. Yeah. Uh, cartoons like the Justice League show, uh, up to now Young Justice, Batman Beyond, Zeta Project, all these kind of like very much DC comics properties. Brand intellectual properties. Uh, they even went into pretty much like films, which would be centered around particular uh, iconic uh, comic books, such as The Dark Knight Rise, sorry, The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, that, well, these are the direct-to-video releases. Yes, yeah. yeah they, they focused mainly on those when it came to animated features, uh, I suppose. I mean, even though the films were really only 70 to 75 minutes long each. Um, and they were they're very successful. Um, uh, but yeah, apart from that, they, they sadly really cut down on their animation and, yeah, we all know how that's going currently right now. Who, who uh, like, like, um, who... It, you 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 mentioned what was it? Um, was it Five of Goes West? Yeah, that's the Don Bluth. We're we're, we're yeah. yeah, we're 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 were the Don Bluth ones true uh, Warner Brothers or was it separate? Like what what was like Land Before Time? Th- those were all the Don Bluth studio. They were actually some of them were animated here, if I remember correctly. Graham, yeah. am I right? Don Bluth had an animated studio. Yeah, Don Bluth had a studio here, and they would have been handled, I think, through Spielberg. So I'm guessing possibly Universal. I don't know off the top of my head. I don't have the details to hand. Um, but in terms of Warner Brothers animation, yeah, that came down from Time Warner. They decided that it would be nice to have because the idea was that up until Little Mermaid, the idea was that no animated movie would ever make more than $50 million and only Disney movies would even get close to that. So there was no point in any other studio investing heavily in animation. Mm-hmm. Then the Disney Renaissance hits and all these movies start making money and you start seeing studios competing eagerly. So like... In the years coming up to this, you have like DreamWorks pushing hard with like Prince of Egypt and The Road to El Dorado, I think, comes yeah. out in 2000 as well. Two great films. Um, great films. And then you have very good films, not necessarily the financial performers that they needed to be. True. Um, Warner Brothers, as we D mentioned there, Warner Brothers buy Turner Animation because they want an in-house animation studio. Um, so they end up releasing a bunch of crap through Turner Animation, including like Cats Can't Dance. Oh, I uh, like that te- one. Cats such Don't a, Dance. That's don't such a dance. weird film. Oh, I like um, it. <laughs> hey, listen, we're all learning about, we're all learning things today. Apparently Fox and the Hound is terrible. I, I also like get- Fox and the Hound, in fairness. Uh, no, it's just a Brad, Brad Bird. It's the Alan Moore of animation. For some unexplained reason, wasn't horny for the Fox. <laughs> like, um, he's like the only person who watched that movie who didn't have nascent sexual feelings. <laughs> That's like, not the it. Animated characters. What? That is it, Graham. Yeah, because a, a, a lot of women apparently have nascent sexual feelings about Robin Hood in Robin That's Hood. That's right. And obviously yeah. because Todd yeah. looks like a fo- uh, like a fox they and a very similar design, a lot of, I imagine, would be similar. But I, I did not see the conversation going this way, but continue, please. Um. <laughs> oh, I definitely did because we're going to talk about uh, Sexy Dean, so it's okay. We can talk about Sexy, <laughs> sexy, sexy Dean characters. I feel like Sexy Dean is a bit removed from like Robin Hood, true. the fox from Robin Hood 1970. Very true. It's like... But, <laughs> 
what what I what, for sorry. furries colon origin yeah, <laughs> yeah um. that's that's the third leg of this stool that I'm building here um the <laughs> what is worth noting just in terms of Warner animation is yes they they push a big amount of effort and money into Quest for Camelot and what happens with Quest for Camelot is I rewatched because I'm a glutton for punishment I rewatched the Warner Brothers Turner animation movies that were released in the run up to the Iron Giant um. I do not necessarily agree with Dee's fondness for them, would probably be the polite way of putting it. <laughs> but it is worth noting that, like, Warners invest incredibly heavily in Quest for Camelot. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that has, like, Andrea Core on the soundtrack. That has a cast that includes, like, Pierce Brosnan Ooh. just when he's being James Bond. Yeah. It has Gabriel Byrne in a tiny cameo. It brings back Carrie Elway. I think Elway, Celine the Dion is on Elway. the soundtrack as well. She's the voice. Yeah, wow. she's the yeah. voice of the character played by Jane Seymour. And by the way, Jane Seymour's done musical theatre, so that just seems rude. But yeah, <laughs> they have... And expensive. And expensive, yes. And they have the... Needlessly. The foreman from Journey is like the voice of, I believe, Gary Oldman's singing voice as well. Because Gary Oldman is also in this as the villain. He is the villain. Of course, he's the villain. And it is it is just terrible because it's very much a like an attempt by Warners to rip off Disney. So you've got like the anthropomorphic animals. It's set in a fairy tale land. It's a story. It's got that kind of again that era of like sounds pop- delightful, Darren. What? Why? Why? Why you want to yuck everyone's? Why young? am I being so? Why am I being so Brad Bird about it? Is the real so question. Sad. Well, look, and and there was that two headed dragon that couldn't stop yes. fighting with itself. With oh, it's, Don Wrinkles and oh. Eric Idle. Oh wow. Yeah. Who makes reference to Friday the Thirteenth? Wow, it's solidified as a good movie in my childhood <laughs> bliss. So I'm not going to let Don't you ruin, ruin this it. for me, Darren. Know, Thank right? you very much. And I'm also not going to rewatch it. So <laughs> ever, <laughs> yeah, it's it's ever again. Yeah, what 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 should we call it? It's like Schrodinger's yeah. childhood movie. <laughs> yeah. Like it's it's. It remains good so long as you don't open the box, like and, and Schrodinger's cats don't dance. Take the DVD out. There were a few. There were a few movies that, like, I would rent over and over from Extravision as a kid, and some of them were. It's so funny. They're literally the ones we're talking about: Cats Don't Dance, mm-hmm. uh, Quest for Camelot, Land Before Time. Mm. Um, yeah. Did you see The King and I? Yes. The nineteen ninety nine King and I. Yeah, it's a good film. Uh. Well, I haven't seen it in a long time. My folks actually got it for me because um, I I was cast as Anna oh. the same year, so that was very so that was kind of a proud moment. But I mean, oh, wow. being a huge fan of the Rogers and Hammerstein original, yeah, yeah I think yeah. even I yeah. can admit that's that's a bit rough as far as adaptations go. Yeah. I watched that, and it's possibly the most racist movie I've seen. And we watched like lots of really old. We watched Gone with the Wind for this what podcast. Phantom Menace. That's a very fair point. 1999 was a resurgent moment for racism in American pop cinema. Um, it's finally coming back, people. Um, yeah, no, it it it's it's really like. Is it Ian Richardson plays the bad guy, and he's the only person who doesn't do like what's probably best described as aural yellow face. Um, so it's like Ian Ian Richardson somehow comes out with his dignity intact from that movie, but it is frankly staggering that that movie exists. But yeah, basically- I don't know, Darren. I was just upset that they cut a bunch of the songs. Man. Okay, <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't thinking about this as a kid. Like, come on. I would like to give some props to 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 Graham because the 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 Schrodinger's um, cat yeah. was it cats don't dance um, was right there. 
<laughs> and, um, and I completely miss it. And you said it. Yeah, so, so well good, done. Good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically. You kind I, of breeze past it. And basically, this, sorry, apologies for that. But yeah, the, this is the best one. This I, best I am one. racing to try and get to the Iron Giant to cover this as quickly as possible. Are you, Darren? Are you? Um, but okay, so the situation with. He has to ruin our childhood first, guys. Yes. That's... He has to get pit stop and just like drive by. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the issue is that with um, with all of those movies, Disney, sorry, Warner Brothers are incredibly hands on. Hands on. In fact, like it's argued that the um, that the the quest for Camelot was directed by like an executive's uh, notes that like that's how the movie came together. Where they did things like they changed the plot device from uh, the Holy Grail to Excalibur at like very close to release because the Warner Brothers executive was like, "That sounds like it's a good idea. People like swords, right? Kids like swords." Um, and the like the decision to have electric guitars and the soundtrack apparently all this stuff came through Radical. the fact that like the 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 sidekick the villain should have like a, a sidekick who says you talking to me um like he's from taxi driver who's also an anthropomorphic tomahawk merged with a chicken like this is kind of where quest for camelot pitches i'm definitely itself. not rewatching this movie never rewatching <laughs> this movie that sounds wild but it it Sorry, Warner Brothers invests very heavily in this and they kind of like try to steer the ship. It's released, terrible reviews, and it bombs. Uh, Then they're like, okay, that's grand. Look, The King and I is coming up. The King and I will be a massive hit. You know, again, Rogers Hammerstein musical, animated princess story, foreign lands. It's like Aladdin. What, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Um, and it, it it releases and terrible reviews and it bombs even worse. And what you have is a situation where they're working on the Iron Giant. And according to Brad Bird, Warner Brothers are paying no attention to them. His, his argument is that, like, our attitude was we were given, first of all, we were given a third of the budget and half of the time that... Disney typically gave its animators or that even to pick an example quest for Camelot had but the flip side of that was that as long as Warners didn't turn off the electricity they weren't paying any attention to us and they weren't noting us so we could do whatever we wanted to do in those meetings and so you have a movie that is very much derived from like Brad Bird's kind of filmography and do do we know do we know the personal story behind this the only thing I know about the background to this is that um, because I watched the on the on the DVD, which I have because I'm retro that way, um, I watched the making of and Brad Bird's pitch to Warner's was what if a soul had a gun? So oh, what if a gun had a soul? Yeah. Oh, sorry. What if a gun had a soul? Imagine <laughs> if it was the other way around. That's still, that's still be oddly funny. poetic. <laughs> what, if, what if a soul had a gun? Sounds like, like Warner Brothers signed off on that pitch and they're like, wait, he's, he's hoodwinking us. <laughs> this isn't what he promised. Thank you, Darren. Yes. <laughs> this would be revisited oh. in Pixar's soul many decades later. <laughs> but yes, that D, D's on to something there. But like, what's really heartbreaking is like, okay, this is the first time people's hearts are going to break listening to this podcast, is that Bird had a sister. Her name was Susan. Um, she died by gun violence uh, about a year before he began working on the Iron Giant. She was shot by her husband. And he has this kind of thing that he says where, like, the thing about gun violence is that it doesn't just kill the person. It kills a little part of everybody who knows that person as well. And, like, again, very Spielbergian 
He said, I never thought about it while I was working on the film. I never had time. I was so stressed. I was working under such deadlines and such pressure. Uh, I never thought about it. But it was like when I got to the end, it was like, yeah, I I was making a statement about what happened to Susan, to my sister, about what the idea of this instrument that you have and you can use it to do terrible things and you can hurt people with it. But what if it didn't want to do that? What if a gun didn't want to be a gun? Um, and that was the entire basis of the Iron Giant. Um, and again, that like it's not as if this is alien to the Iron Giant. It's an adaptation of a British short story written by Ted Hughes, um, who was famously married to Sylvia Plath. He wrote the Iron Giant uh, after Sylvia Plath committed suicide um, to explain her death to their children. That was his way of telling a story to his children about death um, and about the importance of kind of moving on and accepting that death happens and understanding that sometimes it happens for a reason and that, you know, it is a part of life, Uh, which, again, is kind of like really profound and really heartbreaking and kind of maybe speaks to a little bit about what is so kind of special about this movie. But all right, that's, I think, enough context before we get into the release of it and whatever and we talk about it. Let's talk about the movie itself. D, do you remember the first time that you saw uh, The Iron Giant? I do, actually. I never saw The Iron Giant in cinemas. Um, I don't really remember much about its release in Ireland, if it even was. Um, What I distinctly remember is that... um, when uh, we were young, so back in the 90s, um, my parents would sometimes bring home movies on VHS because they would have only just come out in cinemas here or they might not have come out in cinemas at all. And we had a like video VHS player that uh, had a little switch and you could play either like Irish European videos or American videos. So that was really, really cool. So my dad brought back the video of the Iron Giant and I distinctly remember it had a mini Iron Giant toy like stuffed yes. in the case. Now, I eventually like played with it too much and it broke and I lost it and I have no idea where it is now but um, it was really really special and I remember like watching it with my family and we were all like in bits afterwards just like completely overwhelmed with um, emotion just in terms of like the the tragedy and the hope and everything else that was going on in it Um, me and my family have seen it many many times since that Um, And when we were making the change from videos to DVDs, which now in itself sounds absolutely archaic, I'm aware, (laughs) but I did. What is a DVD? (laughs) But I did make sure that I got a copy of it and that's how I was able to watch it because I could not find it on any uh, streaming service, which was bit of a nightmare um yeah yeah and i also remember like in college when i was movies editor for tn2 uh magazine there was like we would do um with every issue like looking at like a little movie poster and i picked that as one of them because i just thought it was such an interesting uh backstory as i like kind of highlighted earlier with the the kind of idea that it wasn't particularly uh well marketed they didn't know how to um pitch it to audiences but yeah i mean i have absolutely loved the iron giant since the very time i saw it I have watched it many times since, and I'll probably watch it many times again. Uh, And Graham, do you remember the first time you saw The Iron Giant? No, no, sadly. It's one of those rare times that I don't. uh, It just kind of just came into my consciousness one time, and it's been part of it ever since. Um, I've shown it to a lot of people, which is uh, lovely. Uh, I'm very happy about it. No, I can't remember. I just remember 
it being it not being in my life and then it being in my life and that's the pretty this is the pretty much long and short of it i just i just i just uh yeah sadly no i wish i did and andrew what about you had you seen this before we covered it for the podcast i, I do actually i do remember the first time watching it my dad got me this movie last tuesday um <laughs> <laughs> I was using his Sky account. I, I was a young boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I bought it using his password. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It's great to be able to share that with your kid. Okay. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um, I do love that you watch this a week in advance I do, I do appreciate that that was some proper proper prep work there no no um, this, all right. the, the, this was like two days ago or, or like we, oh we, sorry you said last Tuesday I assumed it was a week ago sorry I like I, the the we I yes yes yeah but when, <laughs> when 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 I say last Tuesday I meant I mean that like the last 48 hours ago yeah 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 exactly oh. All right, so before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions to get us started. So, Graham, do you think The Iron Giant is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made, and it is number 250 right now? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, yeah, I, listen, I can I can watch this nonstop. I could watch this uh, all the time, you know, back to back. Uh, I never get sick of it. It's always, it, it's always something to enjoy and watch and kind of take in. Uh, Yes, definitely. I think it should be. It's a silly question. I think it should be higher than the two hundred and fifty, but that's really irrelevant. That's just a personal kind of uh, choice on it. But yeah, I think it definitely deserves to be in the two fifty. You feel like the two fifty cheapens it. <laughs> I mean, the way the two fifty is these days, maybe it does. Oh, okay. Okay. Shots fired. Political. <laughs> I mean, Darren's told me a lot of things about the 250 that aren't great. I, I love the idea that he makes it sound, Graham makes it sound like myself and him were drinking one night and I like I, my lips got a little bit loose. It's like, you've never, be, you've never been in the room with the list, man. It says something. You haven't seen what um, I have seen. Yeah. Um, I mean, it looks nice. It presents well. It talks very nice to your family. But you've, you've never been alone with the list. Um, but D, do you think the Iron Giant belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies? ever made yes and i would second what uh graham said and that it should be higher it should be recognized that it is higher than the 250th greatest <laughs> movie of all time um i think it's beautiful i think it's multi-layered it's got a simple and immersive story but there's also like some real deep-rooted um emotion running through it and um it really is one of those movies that stays with you long after viewing and now and again you'll kind of remember it and end up just like grinning to yourself. You know, it's really special. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think this is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Having shared the experience with your dad. <laughs> I texted him and asked him if I could revolute him or anything. Like, no, son, you, you, you enjoy your movie. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I I think I I think I do. I like it certainly like would have my vote for being on on the 250 in 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 the sense that I mean you could kind of argue against it in terms of like the the fairly shallow impact it had like on the um on the culture I guess. 
that um, it, it, it wasn't... Yeah, but there's, a, a, there's a lot to talk about its legacy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and you could say that, like, it depends, on, it depends on what you want the 250 to do. And it's just a list of movies that people vote on, especially nerds. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, and I, this is this is the this is a perfect two fifty movie in the sense that it's a perfect movie to have seen when you were twelve in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, it is, and um, I think it belongs there with like a lot of the Ghibli movies and with a lot of the kind yeah. of um, Disney and Pixar movies too. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think it's got beautiful um themes a uh, a lovely story um i think it's very clever and very short <laughs> it's yes. um yes. it's uh it's it's um it's it's terrific i think you i i i i i think in spite of the poor job they did of advertising the film i think you could show this i imagine you could show this to a lot of kids and they'd be very entertained there's some kind of um puerile humor and um like uh that sort of thing as well so like we um you could you you'd be tempted to talk about it as like a kind of a very wordy movie and it is but it's also like uh, immensely entertaining i mean there is a recurring toilet joke there um, is I there mean, is a recurring toilet joke i i kind of felt like it <laughs> like it was too much but i was also kind of like <laughs> i know if i was a kid i'd be enjoying this is it recurring? Um, it's like once. There is a lot. No, no, it comes like it keeps coming back to toilet. That's why you have to chew your food, or oh, oh it's okay. I got the toilet paper you wanted. Wow, okay, like there's yeah. a lot of toilet stuff in this movie, which is fair. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like toilet humor is humor like any other kind of humor. Who am I to judge? But um, yeah, we'll we'll talk about the release a little bit later on. But I mean, the big account that you hear is from anybody who saw it in that opening weekend. All like five of them. Yeah, was that every screening of the movie people would stand up and cheer at the end of it. Like, there was never a dry eye in the house. Mm. It was just the problem was getting people into the house in the first place. Mm. Um, But for myself, I mean, I can see an argument for it. I think, like, it's good to have an animated 2D movie on there that is not Disney or Ghibli. Um, It is good to have a movie on there that represents that 90s explosion of culture, kind of animation in American cinema after Disney's success. I don't think there is any candidate except The Iron Giant. As much as I think The Prince of Egypt is a very worthy movie, I think The Iron Giant just sweeps the board. Yeah. Um, I think, like, I do worry, I do wonder, like, do we need all three Brad Bird movies in there? Um, Like, but that's a kind of a minor complaint. Being honest, if I were asked to justify this, it's better than The Help is Darren's go-to test. Um, And I think, and this may upset one person on this podcast in particular, but I think it is better than Aladdin, which is at 2.49 at the moment. I thought I you were going to say much. then The Fox and the Hound. Yeah, I was just, who's, the, who's the Aladdin jab at? Well, The Fox and the Hound was never going to bother this list. Because who's who's, who's all it has is that one sequence. I thought you really liked Aladdin. I do, but like, this is better. Okay, fine. Then yes, yes, it does. Um, I like Rob. I like. Don't get me wrong. I love Robin Williams. And I love Aladdin. But like, it's it's not better than Steel, though. Yes, Careful, Andrew. I heard. I heard that. I'm gonna move on before Graham does. What so, did he say? Graham. No, let's return. Would this be on your own personal 250? Your own 250? Yep. Fi- yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I sorry. Jumping the gun there. Uh, yeah. Hands no, down. No, hands what, down. Sometimes the gun doesn't want to be a gun. It wants to be something you uh, jump. Sometimes it. Ha- sometimes the soul has a gun. Um. <laughs> it's such a good line. It's such a, you, you sold it with conviction. You, you did. It was like 
I, I really want that soul to have a gun. Like, I never thought about souls having guns, but now I'm on board with the concept. Guys, sorry, it's right. I'm just imagining a soul, like an orb, just materializing a gun out of it. Okay. <laughs> so, Graham, your, your own personal 250, yes. Yes, I- hand, hands down. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, like, a lot of my 250 would be animated, and this is one of the best animated films um, of my short life that I've seen. So yeah, definitely. Easily. And and D, what about yourself? Oh, God damn, sorry. Uh, yeah, again, I don't know exactly where it would go because I really do one of these days <laughs> need to sit down, <laughs> write this out. Um, mm. I'd agree with Graham in that I'd probably also have a good few animated movies in there. I suppose for my 250, they're films that I like to rewatch. They're ones that strike a personal chord with me. Um but that I also think are of value to the wider film watching world um, and that people are like better for having seen it. Mm. Um, And this movie ticks all of those boxes. Can I ask, like you watched all three of of Bird's films before going into this. How Mm. does this rank in terms of it? I say all three of his movies. You watch the three that are on the list. Yeah. Uh, But how does this rank in Bird's filmography? Is this his best film for you? Is this the favorite of the three we're going to be covering? Um, I mean, certainly like those three films are my favorite of Bird's films compared to like Mission Impossible and other ones. And actually, I haven't seen Tomorrowland, so I might actually check that out um, before we chat about Bird next I mean, my favourite of the three, I'd find it really hard to decide between Ratatouille and The Iron Giant because Ratatouille is one that I've kind of gained more appreciation for over the years, whereas The Iron Giant, my appreciation has been very steady. But my like favourite of the three is Incredibles. Um, And having just rewatched it recently, like there are just so many things of that aspects of that movie that I love and that kind of make a connection with me if that makes sense and stuff that I like seeing in movies so it is kind of I suppose a very like personal experience at the end of the day um but that would personally be my favorite but I think all three are great and the Iron Giant you know particularly I I think that it's kind of hard to compare it as well on the basis of yeah. It is a 2D animated movie and you almost need to treat those kind of movies a little um differently but as we talk about the Incredibles and Ratatouille. I'm. I'm going to be. It'll be interesting to talk about the animate, like the animation quality of those movies as well. Because having rewatched the Incredibles, Sign I'm like, on. it is. Yeah. It has aged, you know. But yeah. um, there's still a lot of charm to it. Um, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the Iron Giant is just going to be one of those. Like, I think it's up there with the Disney greats. I honestly do. I mean, it is. It is worth noting in terms of animation, like. The this is 2D animation, but the Iron Giant itself is computer generated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an interesting choice that was made to make the like giant giant stand out. And like Bird, when he was animating it, found that like he looked at all these other movies. And like again, I went back and I watched Quest for Camelot. Uh, and we've covered, you know, we've covered like Aladdin, we've covered uh, The Lion King and stuff like that. The CGI shots in those movies tend to stand out. They do, yeah. The way in which he did two things here that like allowed him to integrate the CGI better. The first of which was that he decided to add a computer program that would add random errors to the lines um, so they wouldn't be entirely straight. So they would look like they were hand drawn, which is an interesting synthesizing errors, which is not what computers are supposed to do. And the second thing he did was he animated the CGI first. So he would animate the giant, print the giant out and then animate the hand animation over. So it's a layer. It's a layer of animation uh, and then a layer yeah. of CGI. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's a layer really of CGI and then it's a layer of hand animation. The idea, yeah, oh, the other yeah, way sorry, around. Because yeah, yeah. he found that when he was watching movies like, right say, around. Quest for Camelot, 
uh, he was finding that the CGI... El- Sorry, I, I don't mean to specifically dunk on Quest for Camelot, but that was just the one that was mentioned. It's but it was okay. like... He- <laughs> well, it was the one that immediately preceded the Iron Giant, this, so it makes yes. sense to... And Dee will never watch it <laughs> yeah. again. So, so it's okay. Yeah, fair. Um, it, it's not as racist as The King and I, so it's fine. Um, oh, but Wait, is it racist at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But back to the Iron yes. Giant, guys. Back to the Iron <laughs> Giant, yeah. Um, so this is where I would ask Andrew if it would be on his own personal 50, but we've lost and oh we we've got Andrew back. Have we? Have we? Suspense. It's palpable. Oh. I love just Andrew just popped up behind Darren. Yeah, just he's in the room. Um I'm back. I'm back. Sorry. So, Sorry. Andrew. It's been a debacle. Do you know, Darren, I'm like 15 minutes away, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and join the end of this discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't might, have the mic might, set up. Might be easier then. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, um, would it be on my own 250? I'm looking forward to the next 250 episode. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it, 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 like similar to what Dee was saying, it ticks all of my boxes because um, it's funny. It's really sad and it's about something. So it has that great kind of tonal balance, but it's it's really profound. And it's like, um, I, 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 I think what he said was quite astute because it's, it's, it's a movie that you want in the world. You know, yeah. if, 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 if the 250 were to be our kind of time capsule for future generations um for kind of future generations or something then 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 the iron giant would be on it can you okay i think we may have lost andrew again um just (laughs) this is going fantastically um but we got his answer we did get his answer um and to to what andrew was saying there about like it being something beautiful to have in the world it's remarkable how close we came to not having it in the world um Mm. where there were reports early on that warner brothers were considering cancelling it um, after the financial disappointment of Quest for Camelot, after the failure of The King and I, there were reports that they just wanted to sink their, their costs. And apparently the way that they got around that was somebody leaked an entire work print animation to Ain't It Cool News to Drew McWeeny. <laughs> and he ran a review in February 1999 that said, look, this is a classic of American cinema waiting to happen. And Bird, naturally, very chill guy, very cool, as we've talked about. Initially, it was like, I want to murder him with my own hands, but was then like, you know what? This actually managed to put pressure on Warner Brothers to get them to allow us to finish. So in hindsight, I think that leak was a good thing, even though I do not like that people saw the work before it was finished. Uh, And also, one of the issues with its release, and Bird has taken kind of responsibility for this, is that as it was rushing towards release, they test screened it. And as Andrew said, as everybody said here, there was not a dry eye in the house. According to Bird, it got the highest audience score at a Warner Brothers test screening in 15 years. According to Warner Brothers executives, it's more like about six years since Free Willy. It got the highest audience score since Free Willy. Warner Brothers look at this result and say, this is amazing. We have put no money into press for this. We've done no sponsorship deals, no merchandising deals. We haven't got the Happy Meal toy ready to go. Uh, We have banked all of our money this summer on promoting Wild Wild West which we are sure will pay off completely and will be a classic that will last for the ages. Oh dear. Um, but they, they go to Bird and they say, the August release date that we have for this, we cannot get the publicity lined up for this that it needs or deserves. Here's our proposal. We push it into 2000. We wait until next year 
and then we release it we give it a proper push and bird has said like in hindsight he probably should have said yeah wait and do that but at that moment in time he was so afraid that if he waited uh it would be cancelled it would be dropped completely and scrapped by warner brothers mm-hmm. so he was like no you we need to get this in cinemas as soon as possible otherwise it'll be lost because i mean imagine a world where warner brothers just didn't release a finished movie how oh yeah <laughs> And unimaginable. Please don't start. Please don't start start this. This this is the reason why I'm so sad. How how insane would that be? But for myself... We get Black Adam instead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey, the hierarchy of the DC power, whatever crap. Hey, Andrew. Hello. Hi. I am really considering driving to your house. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Um, all right, and for for myself, the answer is maybe. I don't know. I think this is a movie that I would rather, like, if I had a child, I would love to share this with them kind of thing. I think this is a movie It's great to share with people. I don't know if it would be on my own personal 250, but that's just because I'm a, a joyless, emotionless husk of a human being. And Graham, mm-hmm. if listeners have not seen The Iron Giant, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Yes, very much so. Um... I'm really, uh, I'm kind of annoyed that it's not readily available on the, because I have several streaming uh, places and I don't, it's not anywhere. It's on Netflix. I weirdly thought it would be on Disney Plus. I don't know why. Um, well, because Bird's other movies are on there. Well, I was wondering as well, is it to do with the Warner, the fact that it's Warner yeah. Brothers and we don't have HBO Max? Is yeah. that maybe but it? also that might also not be on HBO Max at this stage. It is not on HBO Max in the States. Yes, oh. of course it's not. Oh, God. What anyway, a mess. Um, <laughs> it's almost as if Warner Brothers don't know what they're doing. But sorry, oh, Graham. Oh, God. Um, yeah, it's... The hierarchy of power did change, though. But Graham... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, no, it's, I, I adore it, definitely, like, stop this podcast, let it buffer, and, uh, yeah, watch the film, watch the film fully. Can again, I ask again. you guys a question, um, to, to both Graham and Dee, Graham, yeah. sorry, Dee, you have the DVD, so I'm assuming you have the mm-hmm. signature edition, but you guys, have you guys seen the signature edition of this movie, the director's cut of this? No, I hear it's, I hear it's extended. I don't think I do, uh, Darren, because there wasn't oh, any no, implication okay. on the disc or anything, like, it was just one of those, um, like five, get a fur fiver okay. kind of ones. I remember at the time I was just like, oh, will this be a handy one to have in our collection? Um, but I don't think so. Okay. Uh, like the the only special feature, like I said, was that making of documentary. So, and if I do have it on DVD, it's back at my parents' house, and I don't think it's the the signature the new edition. edition. Yeah. I don't think so. Though I hear, like it is, an ex- it's an extended cut, isn't it, it? It is. So what happened is Bird had, they'd storyboarded sequences, they'd recorded dialogue from the actors like uh, Harry Connick Jr., Jennifer Aniston. Um, they'd done all the work on them, but they couldn't get them finished in time. So he literally just went back and reanimated them, um, which cool. was kind of cool. Like that, It's like just something that was like nice to be able to revisit and extend the movie as a way of like giving a unique selling point. But Dee, would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Absolutely. Um, and buy the DVD. Keep yes. that industry yes. going. Yeah. Um, you can probably get the version I got, which is like a fiver. Um, and I think it is something that you guys, I think that all of us have kind of touched on at this point. But I'd go that step further in saying show it to others. I don't think people realize between like, you know, the fact that it is, you know, a kind of old 2D animated movie and the fact that it's the Iron Giant. Maybe it's not the most attractive title. I don't know. But I'm still amazed at how many people have not seen and gotten the pleasure of enjoying this movie yet. Um, and it's amazing. And I, I don't know anyone who 
hasn't seen it, who hasn't been totally and utterly moved by it, no matter what their age or or, or background. So watch it and show it to people. Get your family together, get your friends together, whoever. Um, I actually, I, I also um, introduced my husband to it. He hadn't seen it before. Um, I showed it to him. So yeah, like I said, like so many people haven't seen it and it's so good. Um, and Andrew isn't there, so I'll just go, yes, uh, share this movie. <laughs> um, absolutely. Like watch this movie, share this movie. I don't really have a horse in the race between the two editions. I think it's good to watch both. Um, I think the additions aren't necessary, but they're interesting. Um, I think that they're kind of like you can see Bird's influences better there. They kind of become kind of Ghibli-esque. One of them is the addition of a dream sequence, which is very, not very, but it's fairly abstract in terms of what it's communicating about the creature and its relationship to the larger world. But it's not necessary. So either version is fine. I say just watch it twice. Um, that's Darren's solution to this problem. <laughs> With that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. And we do not have Andrew to queue us up, so D... Will I do it? Will I do it? <laughs> D, what is the Iron Giant about for you? If it's not about a gun that wants to be... A soul that wants to be a gun. <laughs> a soul, <laughs> a soul that wants to have a gun, sorry. Sorry, D, that's your catchphrase now. I literally can't get... Like, I can't stop laughing because I did the 250 episode on soul and I'm imagining the little soul, you know, yeah. the Tina Fey one. <laughs> <laughs> that's the sequel yes um, mm, voiced by Tina Fey yeah. oh oh dear oh dear that movie oh so po- problematic in retrospect but anyway <laughs> yeah. what, what is what is it about um, for you then see guys I told you guys at the time but anyway um so yeah uh it's about a lot of things um it is like at its heart just a story about a boy and an alien a bit E.T. really <laughs> if you think about it um but I mean, I think that the whole space race and Cold War context to it really do give it like some really interesting um, added layers and really kind of up the stakes um, up the narrative. But yeah, it is kind of a movie about um, souls and um, it has a really potent anti-gun message. Um, and actually that context you gave, Darren, like really does like... Um, I hadn't known about that and that really does give it even like more meaning than it had before. But I mean, it's incredible how, you know, you look at America now and how true this message still is, really. Um, it's a movie that's set in the 50s, came out... Um, this age over 20 years ago. Kind of at the end of the... Yeah, uh, exactly. And it's it's still incredibly relevant, if not possibly even more so now in terms of what it's saying um so i think that's pretty pretty powerful stuff you know i mean like just to put some of this in context like there's a really interesting thing at the end of the 90s where you get this engagement with like 1950s america like i point to things like say the truman show and pleasantville in 1998 you have like blast from the past in like 1999 which is the one the brendan fraser alicia silverstone bomb shelter comedy mm. uh, my favorite martian is the same year the remake of the 1963 television show the following year you have like sydney lumet's kind of fail safe and stuff like that it's interesting that like as you get to the end of the 90s at the turn of the millennium you have this kind of like re-legislation of like atomic era anxiety like where this is kind of like the end of the world and it's 
it's interesting because like during the 50s all this stuff was focused on communism all this stuff was about like well the reds are going to nuke us all the stuff that basically manly says where it's like we have to get up there first and we have to have the missiles and we have to have the capacity to strike back but you have this kind of interrogation of well what if actually 1950s america really wasn't that good to begin with which is kind of interesting because you do have this kind of exploration of like, what was it like to be in, in kind of 50s America? And, like, Bird's talked about the changes that he made, because obviously this is a British book, so it didn't necessarily have a lot of the kind of specific cultural markers. But things like, for example, making um, Annie a single mother, because in, in the book she was married. She she wasn't a single mother. Or obviously the addition of, like, Dean McCoppin, the beatnik artist and junkyard owner, mm. who's very much like an embodiment of kind of, like, 50s counterculture. Or, you know, obviously the addition of, like, Kent Mansley, the, the government agent, the kind of stick in the mud. It's just kind of interesting that you have this, you know, this idea of, well, criticizing kind of the suffocating American kind of hajimani kind of thing. The idea that, you know, in 50s America, again, to get back to that theme of a gun that doesn't want to be a gun... The idea that there's this expectation for what you have to be. Because there's that the great line I think that Dean says to the kid. And the kid obviously says to the giant. Which is, you can be whatever you choose to be. You are who you choose to be. Mm. I didn't mess that one up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, and again, we'll talk a little bit about this more specifically when we talk about Bird's next two movies. But like, that is arguably the big Brad Bird theme. And I think it's kind of interesting that in The Iron Giant, it's probably at its least loaded, um, perhaps, he says, talking about a gun metaphor. Mm. But it's at the point where you could argue that Bird's big theme is self-actualization. It's the idea that you can choose to be whatever you want to be and that exceptional people, people who are truly special, should be free to be who they are. And that has maybe connotations when you get to things like Tomorrowland. But I think that here it's like boiled down to its, its essence, which is this you should be whoever you are and everybody is special. And that means not conforming to the expectations of you. Cause it's like one of the interesting things is that like the villain of this is literally called manly. Um, he's Kent manly and he's defined by this like really outdated kind of masculinity, like first strike threatened by the existence of anything vaguely foreign anything that runs counter to 50s american cultural dominance uh, and like immediately has to prove himself like that bit where he's phoning up the general and he's like i want a memo circulated and then recirculated uh, or the bit where he launches the attack at the end mm. because again he has to like assert that he is quote unquote manly i just i find it interesting that you have kind of birds big themes in focus there kind of like from the start but graham you mentioned at the start that you think this is a movie that speaks to you, or this is a movie that speaks to you for a very particular reason. I think I know what that reason is. Is it up in the sky? Yes, yes, it's not. <laughs> it is up in the sky, is it? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Up, up in the sky. Yeah, even thinking about it, it's uh, very, I don't know, it's just like, because when I saw this, I know I was a child when I saw this, uh, so... Yeah, I've always been quite enamored with the character of Superman, and... When you have a person who is being told, you know, you can choose whoever you want to be. And, you know, you um, he, he makes this great sacrifice uh, at the end. And, you know, the reason he does it is because he emulates uh, a great hero. Who I am made. Superman. I Superman. Not a Tomo. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's very it's it's 
it's kind of the thing uh, that I remember as a child, just always wanting to be Superman and having that striving to, towards those ideals. Uh, I have a kind of weird childhood in that I kind of uh, <laughs> place most of my morals on the characters I grew up reading about or watching and... You know, not learning many life lessons from adult figures, learning them from cartoons. And obviously Superman was one of them. And uh, so this film, like, there's a person there talking about those type of things, trying to be becoming a better person uh, simply by emulating a fictional character. And uh, yeah, the fact that he like, he, you know, Vin Diesel sells that scene very well for the few lines he gives and the animation is gorgeous and you don't know if he's going to make it or not. Even though at this point, after I think about seven or eight times watching this, you know he makes it. I still cry, and I think it's it's literally when those when those um, excuse me uh, when those lines come up when he uh, you know when Hogarth's voice in his head and uh, he lets the new kid him. It's uh, yeah, it's it's surprisingly emotional. Maybe it's really. Mm. Oh, I was just I was just gonna add that's really interesting, Graham. Because I suppose when I was watching this, um, it's just interesting hearing like. I suppose you relate to the movie and I suppose like maybe even obviously, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of seeing yourself in the character of Hogarth, because in many ways, Hogarth is a kid of the 50s. You know, the fact that, um, you know, he reads comic books and he doodles and he watches these late night horror movies and stuff like that. Um, But I suppose in many ways, part of the charm of this movie is that he's kind of... um, He's actually quite a timeless child as well. But he's a latchkey kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, um, he really yes. does have such a childlike nature and wonder in like so many of the sequences with the Iron Giant when they're mm. flying, when they're at the lake with the car and stuff like that. Um, and even the fact, you know, that he's a kid that's being bullied and we've seen kind of bullying being handled in like various you know ways in uh different movies but i think that this film is really interesting in that it's so kind of low-key and it's not really talked about um except when he has that uh coffee rant when he has coffee <laughs> for the saying. first time with dean and he like basically like said like he gives that uh, like i suppose like as a kid you're kind of laughing because it's like oh he's so funny he's talking in a high-pitched voice and it's like he's high on coffee but when you're an adult and you listen and you actually catch everything you're saying you're like yeah. oh my god there's a lot of <laughs> this kid is going yeah, he through doesn't talk about uh, it. yeah especially with the fact that films these days when they do bullies they're really over the top mm-hmm. these bullies were these bullies were just really more realistic like they were like they slag them off and you know that once they come to an an understanding of each other which happens at i think off screen at the end of the film and he's made friends with them i think mm-hmm. like you see they've they've obviously grown to hit to him where he's met them in the middle something like that well, i think it's also like an economics thing in terms of like there's only so much narrative real estate here so everything has to serve it's, a purpose yeah it's just fascinating that the like the film knew what to put in and put out and with these days films being at least two hours or more it's just fascinating when you told me the film was only 80 minutes long i'd forgotten how the time of it when you told me it was 80 minutes i was like wow that is i remember how much story is in this he's found the giant in like 10 minutes like which yeah. is kind of remarkable I mean, the giant shows up in the first minute or yeah, two yeah no but like but hogarth has found the giant within 10 minutes the two of them are yeah. together within 10 minutes i mean to, to bring it back to something d said there which i find interesting is that like Bird and Spielberg are arguably, like, again, very much interlinked as figures. We mentioned, like, historically the connection they have between the two. But, like, 
Hogarth is a... That it's E.T. Yeah, that's it exactly. It is E.T. It's, yeah. it's the exact same premise of E.T. E.T. Right? E. had a gun. No, but E.T. is again... <laughs> what if E.T. had a gun? <laughs> but E.T. is part of that wave of kind of like 80s, 50s movies, along with movies like, say, The Thing or The Fly or like Back to the Future or whatever. Um, and I think like, if you really wanted to be cheeky, and I'm willing to defer to Graham and Dee on this, but the argument that like animation, animation as a feature film medium only really began with Snow White. Like it, that was the point at which people like, you could do theatrically released uh, animated films and they will like make money. And that's why Disney like defined American animation is because they were the first ones to do it and no other studio was able to do it at that level. But that was basically like 20 years behind the regular start of Hollywood. So I think you could, could you make an argument that like anim- American animation has always lagged say 20, 20 years behind uh, feature filmmaking, live action feature filmmaking, and an argument that perhaps, like, you could make an argument that Bird and the people who came up with him are the equivalent to the movie Bratz in the 1970s, to people like Spielberg, Scorsese, that sort of thing, where they are people, who, the, the first generation American animators who came through film school and who specifically came through art school and so specifically studied the techniques of animation rather than, like, making it up on the fly like the nine old men did. Uh, over in Disney, for example, and obviously, you know, the cultural wasteland of Disney in the 80s, which we don't need to dwell on. But the idea that, like, Dee mentions specifically there, the idea of Hogarth as this kind of, like, the giant eats scrap metal, the giant consumes everything that he crosses paths with. But Hogarth is kind of the same thing, where he's he's constantly reading comic books, he's constantly watching B-movies, which I love, um, the, oh no, I forgot my keys. Dar- Dar- I have to... did, did you ask a question there? And did you want anyone to answer? Okay, okay, okay. So my, <laughs> my question is this, basically, right? So we look at the 70s and we look at the directors who emerged during the 70s. And those are kind of the directors who define modern American cinema. And they do so by being directors who grew up watching schlocky B-movies, westerns, gangster movies, all that sort of stuff. Sci-fi movies, sci-fi serials, all that sort of stuff, right? They go to film school. They treat film as a serious art form worthy of serious consideration. They come out and they redefine the medium and they redefine the audience's relationship to the medium around one that is rooted somewhat in authorship. It's no longer studios that are producing these movies. We're interested in seeing like a Scorsese film, a a Coppola film, a Spielberg film, a Lucas film, all this sort of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. And my question is, if we assume that animation lags about 20 years behind live action cinema, at least in American cinema. You know, it's 20 years between the emergence of, you know, silent cinema and the arrival of something like, say, Snow White, which is the feature length animated film that defines American animation, right? If you have that 20 year gap, right? Do people like Brad Bird, that generation of animators who graduated from CalArts, who studied animation as an art form unto themselves, who have enough of a history with the medium to understand it as an object that has always existed and is worth serious consideration and who are pouring their obvious affection into work like this Mm -hmm. and who are arguably the first generation of American animation film directors who are considered the auteurs of their projects as much as the studios. You know, obviously you have like Don Bluth and Walt Disney, but they own studios. Brad Bird never owned a studio. He was part of Pixar's creative team, but he never owned Pixar, you know? Mm. Are those directors who emerged towards the end of the 90s doing something comparable to what the live-action film directors of the 70s, the movie brats of the 70s, the new Hollywood movement of the 70s did for live-action cinema? That is my question. I I think so. Um, I got there eventually. (laughs) I I, I always find it funny how people perceive animation because, uh, because I think animation can do things 
and this film proves it in many ways that I don't think any other medium, uh, visual medium can. Because I, I don't know, I, I, I just love this film so much and I think it shows how great animation and stories can be told through animation because of limitations that are put on live action films or like, you know, what people consider true films um, that, you know, animation doesn't have to worry about. And yeah, but I do think it is it is a bit behind. But I think that's only because of um, no one wants. It took a while for people to start putting in the same amount of effort into it as um, you know film. I mean, is is it a? I I suppose like this whole kind of the 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 question of it is maybe kind of complicated by sense that like a lot of live action movies now are animated movies yes, CGI <laughs> movies, and is that is this kind of like the the success of animation is the the the, the question actually there and kind of and 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 as, as another thing that complicates it is that um like if 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 you take that like if you take the theory kind of put forward that there is a lag between kind of um Live action animation. Uh, live action and animation. There's also a lag between animation and live action, where they're now like remaking all of the kind of nineties. <laughs> We've gone full circle um, remaking uh, it. Yeah, the, That's fair. Yeah. That That's is a very good point. point um, where they're remaking all the Disney movies, whether you want them or not. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to see what the nightmare, living nightmare that Lilo and Stitch will be. I actually had a nightmare last night that I was watching the live action remake of The Lion King. <laughs> Swear to God, I'd never seen it. And I actually dreamt that someone made me watch it on Disney+. Plus. Wait, you never watched, you, you, didn't, you didn't watch the CGI? Uh, no. I, oh, well done. And it was so weird because in my dream I could hear billy eichner it was so weird. Well, well did you did you did you see bros recently i did that's probably i wonder you. if that's what happened yeah, yeah. He's, he's basically timon in bros bros is basically like what if timon and pumba were like had relationship difficulties was it um, yeah. I love well, it. yeah wasn't it like um isn't it like set rogan and billy eichner like yeah. it's a, a bros i have not seen it but it's a judd apatow movie so presumably said rogan is also really in it I've heard it's no, good. Yeah, it, I, it's I, a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, it's not. It's Luke. Luke McFarlane is the guy. Oh, sorry. No, just terribly promoted. No. So I've seen some stuff in it, and I'm I'm fairly hard to reach. <laughs> I was like somebody who does not care um, about movies generally, <laughs> like does a podcast each week. But um, yeah, I, I was aware of, of 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 Bros, so they must be doing something right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's kind of that push and pull because the whole idea is it's like, well, this is what they say anyway. But I was trying to think of another example and it might be the first um, like LGBTQ rom-com released by a major yeah. movie yeah. studio. Now, mm. indie ones have done it, but that's that's what they're kind of yeah. touting it as. Um, but anyway, we digress. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do want to say on The Lion King, um, there, there was a lot of talk about how the... The lions didn't have genitals, but like, did was people? There? Was there? Was there not? Are you thinking of cats? Yeah, I think you're thinking, thinking of cats. cats. There was but a lot of talk around cats, but I, 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 I was thinking cats like, was on the other side. What is um, the solution that people too many think? Genitals. Like, because if you gave all of the live action lions genitals, then that's all that people would talk about, right? 
Sorry. I feel like that's a loaded question. Um, I feel like there's no right answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. it's like you're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Probably just like, don't shoot them from that angle. <laughs> like, use your creative vision there, John Favreau. Um, <laughs> look, Barry Jenkins. I'm, I'm actually very curious about Barry Jenkins' Mufasa, in large part because it seems like it may be a passion project. But like, oh God. Dee, in terms of yes. like situating American animation, because this is around the time you have, say, The Prince of Egypt coming out as well, and that's like Jeffrey Katzenberg's like Ooh. big, important mission station mission statement movie. Like, there are stories when he's in DreamWorks that he's like, this is going to get a Best Picture nomination like beauty and the beast did like is there a sense that like by the end of the 90s animation is maybe having that moment that kind of film had in the 70s the kind of it's new hollywood moment or it's kind of like where you have the kids who grew up on old animation coming in and and trying trying new things with it is that fair no i don't think so i think that like um we've kind of talked about how there have been moments where animation has been ahead and where live action has been ahead and i think that the iron giant got a bit lost because Frankly, I think animation was a bit lost in the late 90s. And that's part of the reason why it's ended up snowed under. Um, I can't really think this of... This was two years after Toy Story, for example. Yeah, exactly. That's a, That was actually going to be my next point in that you also had this idea of CGI animation. What are we going to do about this? Is this a road we're going down? I think that um, filmmakers and studios were a bit like lost with what to do with this medium. And in many ways... The Iron Giant just gets the balance just right. You know, we touched on how, you know, in terms of its animated quality and how it blended it, the CGI with the traditional um, 2D animation style. It's it's just so well done. And, you know, it's it's not trying to, like, show off its CGI moments, um, whereas you get, like, other, you know, um, you know, sequences like, you know, the Escape from the Cave thing in Aladdin, where, like, now those, uh, like, sequences stand out like a sore thumb. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, like, that really, really rough. Remember when it was, like, the 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 the, the part of the palace swirling in the snow? Yeah. I just look back at that and I'm like, yeah. oh, God, why did... Like, was that, like, stage one? Or <laughs> what was this? It's so unrendered. But anyway, um, yeah, but this, this movie has, like, um, aged really well. And like you said, in terms of the culture, I think it has had more, much more of an um, impact than it had at the time. I think it was just... It was unfortunate the time it was released um, that it didn't get the appreciation that it should have. Yes, we should note, by the way, that it was completely overshadowed by the release of Disney's Tarzan that same summer, which was regarded by some observers as the end of the Disney Renaissance, which very much kind of plunges American 2D animation into into chaos, into doldrums. Because afterwards, like Disney obviously had this huge run at the start of the 90s. They had like Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, uh, The Little Mermaid, these movies that were hugely successful, critically acclaimed, you know, Oscar nominations, all that sort of stuff. As you get towards the end, you start seeing dwindling returns. Pocahontas, Mulan do well, but not as well. And the movies start getting even more expensive. Tarzan, I believe, was more expensive than Sleeping Beauty had been adjusted for inflation. Yeah, you need, you need that yeah I'm not surprised. Funny. Yeah. Um, and you have this idea again of kind of like the idea that, yeah, these movies are no longer appealing to kids and stuff and kids now want to see CGI and the idea that Disney's spending like as much, I believe they began filming Tar, they began making Tarzan a year before the Iron Giant and they had something like twice as many animators working on it and it still came in three weeks later just to give a sense of like how much Disney had pumped into. I think the 
I think there might have been. Oh, sorry. Um, I think there might have been something happening as well. And I think that Pixar really kind of uh, got this like conversation going was I think something else that was happening kind of in um, when you get into like the mid to late 90s was filmmakers were starting to kind of ask themselves and the, and the studios like how mature should yes. these animated features be? How many like kind of more adult themes should we start getting into? Because I remember like the likes of, say, Pocahontas and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, they do go quite God dark. Damn, Hunchback of Notre Dame. And, you know, um, they attribute some of the reasons why, you know, they weren't as successful in the box office was because they were almost too mature for kids. Mm-hmm. Now, I think The Iron Giant kind of gets the balance right in that it's not as concerned with that. But then you get like kind of the big hitters of Pixar coming out, you know, kind of when you get into the 2000s. And a lot of the praise around those movies was around the fact that they appeal to adult and kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even the likes of Monsters, Inc., Bugs Life, stuff like that. We'll be talking about The Incredibles next week, which is like an animated family film about adultery, um, among many, many, <laughs> yeah. many other things. I mean, the, I mean it, was Tarzan considered a failure? Tarzan did you're saying it's the end I do love Tarzan yeah so do I Tarzan did well it didn't do well enough is the Uh, big knock against it it cost far too much it was also conceived to sell Animal Kingdom and toys like the reason why they commissioned it was because they were launching the Animal Kingdom theme park and needed a big movie that would tie into it as well they also needed toys and other merchandise Mm. sales as well I mean that also came in hard as well with the killing of his parents literally in the first five minutes of the film i mean there's literally a shot of clayton hanging <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah he has dark. the worst he has the worst death in disney i think so yeah it's everyone really else either falls off a cliff or gets eaten by hyenas or you know i don't oh she oh what's her name from ursula she gets impaled by a by a ship so that's pretty bad but yeah the hanging is the worst i think well i mean to, to give a sense of like how prestigious Disney considered this film to be. Mm. I don't think that Tarzan has any diegetic music apart from that sequence where like the gorillas come into the encampment and just make noise using pots and pans and stuff. I think it has the, obviously the uh, Phil Collins soundtrack that the kids love so much, but which is very clearly designed to win Oscars. But I don't think it has any big like internal musical numbers like we associate with Disney films. Um, That's because again, Mm. there's a sense of this, we're worried about being perceived it's, as something I, too childish, this animated movie. I completely forgot about Ursula's death. Like, I I, I, I loved that movie. It was, like, yeah, the I know, first right? movie I that I loved, I think. And I asked to, like, go back again and again. You must be excited for the live-action remake. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I'll probably... Like, unless it gets onto the list, I probably won't go see it. Maybe it will. The Lion King did. I I imagine it'll be quite good. Lion King didn't get onto the list. Oh, it didn't. None none of the remakes. None of the remakes made it onto the list. Wow. None of them. That's interesting. I'm glad. I'm glad there's some respect there. (laughs) Yeah, some. Some. Sorry, go get there, Anderson. No, no, no. I was just going to say that that there are other reasons why the live-action Little Mermaid won't won't get onto the yeah, list. That's true, sadly. Yeah. Yes, yes, there are. And and um, and the the the. Um, I don't suspect. I suspect we won't be covering Wakanda um, forever. I didn't. Re- yeah, no. I I I think it all started. I didn't realize that Ursula died the same way that uh, Jaws four. Uh-huh. <laughs> killed a shark. Did did like Ursula blow up no. when the boat hit? No, she didn't. <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, I think there was just ooze and stuff. Uh-huh. Anyway, speaking of ooze and oil. Oil, Iron Giant. I don't know. I don't know, guys. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have any we, oozer. We need to talk about he the movie. Oil. He's very rickety. 
He's very oh, rickety. You're right, actually. I like, I like that's the criticism we're making. Voiced by Vin Diesel. Yes. Um, literally his, that's his the first oil. role. <laughs> the first role that he had after um, a Saving Private Ryan, where it was just like somebody again going straight from Spielberg to Bird, but somebody's like, yeah, you got to check this guy's voice out. And it's great. You watch the behind the scenes features and like he's munching chicken when he's eating, like he's eating like chicken or crisps when he's munching on the cars oh, and smart. stuff, which is kind of, it's really kind of amazing when you're looking behind the scenes at like voice recording. Um, but yeah, we should. He's the presenter. He's the presenter of the making of documentary that I saw, which is <laughs> oh. like crazy that you had that Vin Diesel money back Ooh. then. You know? <laughs> is Vin um, Diesel secretly a genius? No. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, again, Maybe. like people talk about like the Groot stuff. He is a voice actor. He has experience in it, to be fair. Yeah. And like he talked about what is it? The hours that he spent uh, saying tree and rock, just like spending hours to get the right connotations on his voice. <laughs> So that you'd know what he meant when he said those words. Well, it works. Like, the Iron Giant is a wonderfully expressive character. And a lot of that is animation. And, like, to, the 3D model was designed by Joe Johnson. Oh, who famously, wow. like, he worked, obviously, on the Star Wars movies. Uh, he made, obviously, The Rocketeer in the early 90s. And obviously went on to direct, like, Captain America, the first Avenger. But he's one of the great, mm-hmm. like, design artists. He designed it. And they talked about how, like... pieces. Well, they talked about, well, again, like, mid-century stuff. Yeah. It's... These yeah. are all, again, new Hollywood era people who grew up like nerding over the stuff from the 50s and the 60s and stuff. But like they talked about how like one of the big innovations with the giant was realizing that if you put a bottom eyelid on, you like allowed it to become infinitely more expressive. They were like, that was a big moment in the design meeting was when he came up and he just drew a line under the eye. And it's like all of a sudden everybody in the room was just like, wow. And we should mention actually just in terms of production uh, Bird came up with it because, again, we talked about how Bird was very much against the way that animation had been done in Disney. Uh, the way that Disney traditionally animated was they had animators for each character. So the idea was you were assigned a particular character. And they have, like, great animators throughout its own history. Like, the guy who animated Gaston, for example, also animated Jafar. He's one of the great villain animators. And it's it's basically like being a movie star, but in animation. And Bird didn't like that because he said that, like, there's no way to advance. You end up overworking your best artists and you end up, like, not developing or training your lesser artists. So he came up with the idea that the film would be divided by sequence or by scene and he would give everybody a scene to animate. Now, the length of that scene, the complexity of that scene would vary, but everybody would get to play. And like, isn't that kind of what animation does now? That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, no, it, it's yeah. now the default. He he changed the way that you animate, which is like, and that's the way. Like, what Andrew joked about the idea—not joked, but Andrew made the very good point about how all movies are animated movies now. That's what Marvel do. They just split up scenes and give them to different studios and houses to produce. Um, but like, he he also kind of talked about how. Bird is not necessarily the nicest man to work with, as we may have gauged from this. Like, there's a really good um, interview, like, in the making of documentary that he produced himself to give him some kind of credit. But where they had basically Alison Abate, who was his co-producer. She was the person who was responsible for dealing with Warner Brothers on his behalf. And she's asked, can you tell us what it's like working with Brad Bird? And this is in the documentary that he produced. Yeah. There's a pause. And she sits back and she goes, I want to take a moment. And the interviewer goes, is it a tough question? And she pauses. She thinks very carefully about her words and she leans forward. She says, I hated working with Brad Bird. Um, Yeah. And he would apparently be very vicious um, when he would have meetings. He would like pull no punches. uh, Very swearing, very aggressively. Uh, When you presented your work to Bird, you would get slaughtered in front of the entire room. 
but he would do that to everybody. Oh, that's great. And so everybody came out feeling... No, everybody came out feeling like they'd served in a war together. And everybody was like, yeah, he really pushed us to be the best that we could be. Like, all of his animators talk about how working on that movie, they felt ownership. They felt like they, because they got to do stuff, because they were, like, they were, like, being trusted to do stuff and being held to the high standard of doing it to bird standards. They all felt like they delivered on it. I suppose that's often the way, isn't it? I mean, I mean, mm. with, with, it's not, I don't think it's necessary but oftentimes, like, like I'm watching the last dance at the moment, and everybody kind of on that <laughs> Chicago Bulls team was like, um, basically saying like Michael Jordan was a bully. Um, he was a tyrant, and like he he helped so much. <laughs> you know, yeah. we wouldn't have been able to yeah. do what we did with 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 without him, and then he kind of willed us to be better. Are they looking um, back fondly, or is it Stockholm Syndrome? Who can say? <laughs> I know, like, yeah. Like, the, the peop- like, people working on this still work with Bird. Like, Peter Son, who, like, is the voice of the cat in Lightyear, who directed The Good Dinosaur, the movie that very famously didn't have a director for two years. It shows. Like, Peter Son is like, I got my big break. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry. No, no, I, I agree. <laughs> but, like, yeah, so they, they released the movie. They have no tie-ins. Warner has spent all of its money promoting Wild Wild West. They put all their money in Wild Wild West stuff. <laughs> Um, Disney are bu- busy promoting like Inspector Gadget, which opens the same. Oh weekend. no! Um, and like Bird talks about how like going out on opening weekend and like discovering that the the stall that was supposed to have the shot, like the 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 Burger King that was supposed to have the Iron Giant poster, they weren't getting them in until like the Tuesday after the movie opened. Uh, he talks about going to the cinema and discovering, like, all the screens had, like, big poster font writing for, you know, like, uh, you know, Runaway Bride or Big Daddy. We're all, like, very showy, like, fonts in the movie style. And the Iron Giant cinema just had a piece of notepaper and pen written on it saying oh. the Iron Giant. He talked about going to, like, the Century City, like, Burbank cinema and finding the, like, gigantic standy like, Iron Giant six-foot-tall model that they'd given to the cinema had been placed by the toilets and the emergency exit so that you could only see it after you had left the cinema to go to the bathroom. And, like, you have producers talking about how, like, they would stand outside cinemas and wait for anybody to mention it and would offer to buy tickets in the hope that if they got people to go and see it, they would tell their friends to go and see it. Oh, that sounds like an urban myth. Come on. I'm sorry. That last one is pushing it. The producer says that he did that and he Mm. only, but he says that he only bought 12. Like, that's it. He was waiting for anybody to mention it, like standing by the kiosk and saying, I'll buy your ticket and somebody else's. And it's like, I bought 12. If it, I I think it was, I think it was so that he could claim that he had no part in its failure. He's like, hey, (laughs) Hey, I bought I bought twelve tickets. Twelve tickets, man. Um, but what's what's interesting is that the movie is like immediately recognized by filmmakers. Like Guillermo del Toro is like, this is a masterpiece. Francis Ford Coppola records a voicemail and says, "Look, you're going to get hammered in the press, but in twenty years, people are going to call this a masterpiece." And Bird is like, Bird being characteristically like. Birdian is like it didn't take 20 years um it's like yeah well, nice um but like it is immediately beloved by anime after that i took things personally <laughs> um where like it, it receives 15 nominations at the annie awards that october which is more than the prince of egypt and tarzan combined wow. it sweeps 
the awards there. Disney would only win two Annies that year, one for a technical achievement and the other for Lion King 2 Simba's Pride. And apparently when they when they announced that the, the Iron Giant had won an award at the Annies, people would jump their feet and clap. <laughs> for example like it was just it was immediately beloved by animators it became this story of like the underdog and over time it's kind of reputation grew and i guess this is kind of something i just we're getting near the end we do have a hard out here but something i just want to flag and i want to get like graham and d's opinion on the legacy of the iron giant where like you know bird like he went back he we mentioned he reanimated scenes of this for the signature edition back in 2015 which compared to like uh really scott going back to blade runner but the iron giant has become this fixture of pop culture where he appears for example he appears in obviously we mentioned ready player one he appears in space jam a new legacy uh he appears in the video game multiverses and i find it really interesting that the whole point of the iron giant is the iron giant is a gun that doesn't want to be a gun but he's used as like a fighting machine in Ready Player One and as a beat-em-up character uh, in Multiverses. Well, what do we guys... I, I suppose you have to admit that when he is messing things up, he's pretty awesome. Like, <laughs> well, in spite of like how sad it is. It's very sad. And I'm a... I'm and afraid. how you don't want to see it, you kind of also want to see it. <laughs> <So like. laughs> I've played Multiverses and I don't like that he's there. Like... It's I get all the other all the other characters make sense. Like he like he's in a game with Rick. Rick Sanchez. You can see Rick Sanchez beat the crap out of the Iron Giant. I don't want that. Like the whole, like but on the other hand, you can see the Iron Giant beat the crap out of Rick. Yeah, that's true, but I don't want that. But as a counter argument, my only thing would be um like I get that, and I mean I remember seeing him in Ready Player One and I was like, Well I oh, well they hardly brought back Vin Diesel to voice him now, did yeah. they? And I mean he wasn't a particular, you know, note of that in that movie or anything. Um that movie, by the way, is such a disappointment. Like once they leave yeah. the um what's the name of that the world? Oasis. The Oasis, it just falls off a cliff. And it's actually, I actually quite enjoy that movie. Anyway, um, I I digress. I was going to say, okay, so my counter argument to that would be, okay, at least if they put the Iron Giant in these games and spin off and whatnot, does that mean that people are seeing the character and they'll go back and watch the origins? That's my hope, you know? Yeah, that is true. That is true. And when they see it and go, hey, he's not a monstrous killing machine. Oh, he's peaceful. Oh, that's boring. And also, this is a great movie. Because I, wor- I worry where kids' heads at are, heads at are at these days. But the flip side of that, though, is that this is presumably aimed at like 30 or 40 year olds who watched this movie as a kid or as a teenager on VHS and is appealing to their nostalgia. It, it's, it's aimed at the esports crowd, which ages can range drastically. So, yeah, you can I have love having kid- a video game guy on. Talk about this. You can, you can easily crowd? have kids as young as 10 playing this and going oh cool a uh, big iron man giant thing because he even has the s he even puts the s on isn't does he have the s he has the s yeah and it's really funny because he's <laughs> in the game with superman and it, i think i think they have special dialogue Aww, with each other just like he wants exactly exactly <laughs> to beat the hell out of superman <laughs> I a tomo no what and tomo. yeah it's 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 just it's just it's just fascinating to see that because yeah, Ready Player One was a weird moment for me because, like, oh, cool, the Iron Giant. But then I thought, then I like thought for a second. I was like, wait, the Iron Giant—they're putting him into a war, and it's just like it—it it just kind of like not broke my brain, but it's just like a little kind of little kind of sizzle, just going, oh, that's not that's not right. Uh, I mean, I su- 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose my sentiments on it is that it's nothing nothing personal towards the Iron Giant. It's just this is the world of movies now. And I mean, yes. this I haven't even seen Space Jam and New Legacy. Like I couldn't yeah, put I myself through it, but my husband did on a flight and he was like, it was one of the worst things he's ever seen. And both <laughs> me and him are huge fans of Space Jam. Um, mm. Space Jam. And I know I know that's a bit of a cash grab oh, as well. Is. I get I it. it. But it is. But it is a bit of crack. And I mean, yeah. like. But like what that has become, and I heard the new Tom and Jerry is like oh, really awful. rough as well. Like what it's Warner awful. Brothers is doing now is like what the hell? Like they're kind of. I suppose there's a questionable element of yeah. so meat and fish and all that is animated when people are eating it, which then begs the question: Are they killing animated characters to turn them into food? And that's a I mean, really. Yeah, we've weird... all seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? I was about to say that's what they kind of started. It's so weird that conversation. It's just such with, a I weird suppose. element. Just a kind of throw that in there just to even scare I mean, you what do we reckon away. Tom tastes like that's the question I never thought yeah, I'd it's ask just to, just to make sure Dean never watches it I'm just going to say the weirdest thing that happens in that film I don't I don't think I'd watch it anyway it's but I mean I suppose that's I think Warner Brothers is a bit I don't know I suppose they're a bit like lost at the moment yeah, and they're kind of looking back to like their big successful things and you know they're putting like effing a clockwork orange characters yes, yes. into Space Jam and New Legacy they don't even know what they're about anymore they're just like this was good let's remind people how we used to be good guys you know that's- well, isn't there some there's some debate about whether like there's a nun who appears at the basketball match and there's a discussion about whether or not that yeah, is the, no one knows which nun it is no one knows whether that is the nun from the nun or the nun from Ken Russell's The Devils which Warner Brothers owns and will never release uh, and it's like which which IP is this and it's like uh, what's, what's What's even weirder is that they, because I've I've been listening to the rather the stuff that's been going on with Warner Brothers, and one of the things is they're keeping their they're 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 throwing out a lot of original work, a lot of original animation that's been really bringing people into HBO Max, like Infinity Train and all that, like scrubbing it completely from their archives, their service, yeah, yeah. But they're bringing in more cart, they're bringing even putting forth even more stuff for character legacy characters. Like there are two, there's a film coming out and a. A TV show by Mindy Kaling, Velma. all centered around Velma, and a film um, oh. going to HBO Max. Not the not the one that they cancelled. The uh, just an animated one that also deals with the fact that um, one of the side plots is that Velma is a lesbian, and it's just fascinating that they're focusing. Didn't on... Didn't they have her come out in a recent episode it, or it's, something? It's, 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 it's coming out in this film. Uh, it's just it's making, okay. it's making the rounds right now because the scene is being shown. And it's just weird that they're going back to characters that are... It's not weird. God, I want to say, like, like, but I mean, they're not going, they're not pushing. There was a time, like, Darren, you put out, I think, a tweet today saying, do you remember how creatively friendly Warner Brothers were? Like, I had, like, I, I, it's a weird thing to say, but I adored Warner Brothers as a studio because they took chances and they took risks and they made really interesting projects. And now it looks like they're kowtowing because... Because they're not doing as well as they sh- think they should be. Well, it's uh, it, it, I, I think like part of it was, well, no, um, I was going to say like Zack Snyder is the reason you can't have nice things. But in, in fairness, it, no, it isn't. It I, isn't really. I think it's more than his fault. We do not have time. We do not have time for a Snyder debate. No, no. But it, I, it, that it was kind of stuff like that, like Batman v Superman and 
in fairness, the the original and Justice the fact League, that Batman versus Superman didn't make a billion dollars is specifically it. Yeah, that's yeah, the fact. Like, like that. if Batman versus Superman had made a billion dollars, Warner Brothers would be a lot more comfortable. It would be a, still probably be a more creative friendly studio. Also, the fact that it's been bought and sold and stuff like that, and it's it, you know it's been it, Time it, it, Warner wanted it to be vertically integrated and then realized they couldn't do it, so just threw it away. And it it's like so, Discovery picked it up and didn't have any idea. Sorry, it was so odd though because like you know Zack Snyder has good movies but like he he's not you know Clint Eastwood or like it would well again like we we talked about this it's the fact that 300 made all the money that it did in March as an R-rated movie which was unprecedented yeah but you also you 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 also look at his failures you have to kind of kind of take take that into account like what's the worst Christopher Nolan movie like it's still pretty good yeah um and, and but like, the idea with Warner's was that you keep gambling and eventually they'll pay off. Like again, it's like it's it's the Clint Eastwood thing where like Clint Eastwood makes like ninety movies and thirty of them are not good, but you know another thirty are good and then another thirty are like some of the best stuff you've ever seen. Right. Where it's he like doesn't. I think he'll die. Well, he's like a shark except with a video camera. If you yeah, don't do right. second takes, then like you're you're you're, you're going to bat like you. about three hundred, right? Yeah. Um, but like that that's. That's the thing about Warner's is that obviously like their creative centric approach was very much like an accidental thing where it's like we don't understand like like most of the studios all this and again it's a thing that goes back to the 70s where it's like nobody knows anything that's it no, the the old truth about Hollywood but the idea that yeah these movies make money and we don't understand how or why like Paramount didn't think the Godfather was going to make any money and ended up being the biggest movie of the year and swept the Oscars that year for example and so they let Francis Ford Coppola do what they want and he, and and then they think like you know Apocalypse Now that's got a bomb, right? Like, it's taken him... He's running two years over budget. He's using the army of a small company, a country. Yeah. He's he's pumping his own money into this thing. There's no way this movie makes any money. And then it's released and it turns a profit. So, like, yeah, I guess that works. So, I guess we'll uh, we'll just bankroll whatever he wants to do next. Like, that was the, the Warner Brothers approach. It wasn't like they were, like, as a philosophy, we like this idea and we think creatives are good. It's like, we don't understand how creatives work, but they make us money. Yeah, it's a, it's, it it's a lack of kind of taste, I think. It's like kind of thinking in terms of like, um, oh, oh, that, that Dee's cat has made a cameo. <laughs> no, don't apologize. Here, Pippin, come, come say oh, hi. Oh, Pippin. 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 Is Mary? Pip- is Mary around? No, uh, Blade is the other one. Oh, nice. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Andrew, that was oddly, uh, that was oddly flirtatious. <laughs> Blade might come sorry, over sorry. later. Sorry, Cash. Cash interrupted the podcast. Go on. No, not at all. I, and he actually disappeared for a while. And I was that's what I was distracted by doing, guys. Sorry, I was texting my <laughs> husband being like, where is the other cat? I don't nope. see him. And then it's like, oh, there he is in front of my camera. <laughs> mm. um, uh, and just, just to close up that thread, uh, for me, I think, what bothers me about like the use of the Iron Giant uh, as like a giant cool mecha fighting machine in say multiverses in Ready Player One, uh, you know, in obviously you know Space Jam and Legacy is kind of in this field as well. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to do with the movie itself. I don't think it like retroactively ruins uh, or impugns the movie. I think the movie is an object that exists of itself and its meaning is derived from itself. And the use of the Iron Giant as a piece of intellectual property doesn't cheapen the original movie in any way, shape, or form. That's not what 
bothers me about it. Mm-hmm. I think it bothers me on kind of a more primal level, a way that's kind of like it's it's it it does upset me. It is a kind of an emotional response, but it's tied to something I think a little bit bigger where mm-hmm. like it's it's emblematic of and I worry I'm gonna sound like an old man shaking his fist at the sky here, but mm-hmm. it's an emblematic of a culture where we have completely divorced iconography uh and symbols from like meaning substance and context where like we're so nostalgia driven that our nostalgia is rooted in the like perfect recreation of imagery and iconography from our own past but with no real engagement with what that iconography means is about the context that it existed in and in many cases actively hostile to that we don't want to think about what the iron giant is we just want to see the thing that we recognize Mm. we want to take this object which was like part of this beautifully crafted artisanal project and reduce it to a you know quick endorphin hit of seeing something we know interacting with something else we know and like that 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 bothers me because it's so so perfectly distills one of my big issues with this modern nostalgic suffocating ip driven landscape in which we find ourselves um yeah so so uh, me shaking my fist at the sky uh ending on a kind of a positive note there <laughs> i think that about then wraps it up then unless there's anything else we talk about anything we haven't discussed already andrew you've been kind of in and out is there something you want to talk about something we haven't discussed already i know i've been out for quite a bit so you could have talked about everything but um <laughs> a, i mean it did there's there's some kind of like what you might consider sort of uh, showy kind of late nineties casting, but I think it works really well. I think mm, Christopher McDonald is great. I yeah. I think John Mahoney is fantastic. Yes, I think Jennifer Aniston is really good. That was a um, point of contention over with Bird in the studio, where the studio wanted a star. Now Bird was like, yeah. first of all, none of them are going to be in this crappy little movie from the studio that bombed like a Quest for Camelot. <laughs> and the other thing was, I don't want any of them either. Um, but it's like they wanted like Brad Pitt to play Dean, for example. They wanted like Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Kent Manley. Oh, I saw Sinbad. I was about to say Sinbad. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of like <laughs> That's mediocre. Right. He, has a, he, has a, he has a face for animation. Um, but yeah, like it was apparently like the only concession that he met was Aniston. And he wanted Aniston from the start anyway. Hmm. But it was like, yeah, Aniston was the only A-list movie star they cast. Because like Harry Connick Jr. was nobody particularly famous. No. Christopher McDonald was best known for his work on television at that point. Um, John Mahoney was How from Fraser. You, Christopher McDonald. But they're 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 not like huge stars, but they're also kind of the sort of voices that you would hear and you would recognize them from something other than voice yeah, work. Like uh, M. Uh, Emmett Walsh, for example, who plays the sailor at the start, has like one of the most distinctive voices in cinema, and he's phenomenal, I think, as well. Um, like it, it's it's worth noting that like the the train engineer, they're like. He cast even, like, Ollie Johnson and Frank Thomas, who were, like, the nine old men at Disney, the old animators who, like, convinced him to start animating. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, the trains engineer and fireman, the guys who see the giant, they're the nine, They're two of the nine old men, which is mm. kind of great as well. And yeah. I think some of the background characters are also modeled on, again, the animators who taught Brad Bird how to animate as well, the nine old men of Disney, which is kind of... Have, have, kind of have we spoken about the Cold War parable of it all? Only very broadly and very vaguely. Yeah. So what... what, what what jumped out at you about that? Well, just just how kind of um, present it all is. How it's 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 this kind of like thin veneer of this thing came from space, but as 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 it's kind of entering, you have kind Sputnik. of Sputnik passing, 
and you 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 have these comics about kind of the red menace and the 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 kind of militarization and the panic around this 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 great um threat that nobody's trying to kind of understand or 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 um kind of well the idea that anything alien is inherently hostile and inherently threatening Mm. it's we don't understand it so it must be evil it's sadly timeless yes it it kind of resonates a great deal to be fair i mean what i find Um, really interesting about the 1950s background to it and the whole idea of the space race and the cold war and i suppose i'm speaking to this of like my own um kind of experience watching the film because like as a kid um i wouldn't have known or picked up on that like maybe it'd be different if you were from america um since history wise they only learn about themselves but i mean it does kind of add to your appreciation of the film when you're older because you do understand that there is this tension um and particularly i would argue underlying fear like yeah. mansley when he goes on that monologue in the shake shop yeah. and it kind it's of gets into topic. like the paranoia and all of that yeah. um really what's under all of that is like this fear and i find that really kind of um quite interesting because it's not something that they really talk about the fact that these characters and these grown adult men are afraid of the unknown and afraid of these kind of new threats that are coming about. Um, But it's something that you pick up on much more so um, as an adult watching the film, that that's definitely present. And the idea that, again, they're fearing kind of obsolescence. Again, the fact that, like, Annie is a (laughs) single mother, for example. The fact that, like, Manly threatens uh, the kid with that, where it's like, your mom's, your mom, your father's not around, your mother's a single mother. We could say she's a bad parent and have you taken away. Um, the idea that, yeah, that this breakdown of social order is threatening. And again, the idea that maybe not to, this is far too late to introduce this idea, but the idea that at the end of the 90s, with like, you know, second and third wave feminism kind of coming in, the idea that you had men facing similar arguments about their own obsolescence and their own insecurities and the question of like what it's like to live in a world where women are are truly equal and we're dealing with or we're confronting issues like systemic racism and what does it mean to be a man in a world where you're no longer top of the roost again the fact that he's literally called kent manly Mm -hmm. um and the fact that he would rather blow up the like (laughs) they're aimed right at the giant and where is the giant the fact that I would more go that's incompetence rather than no. But he I, does I, it. He's, I, he's just very stupid. It's a temper thing. It's reflexive. He does yeah. it because he's threatened. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, I, 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 I disagree. I, I do, I, I do, I do think it's gendered. Um, as in, sorry, no, I disagree with Graham. I didn't say anything about gender. Um, I agree with I, I agree with Darren. The, 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 oh, that it, it is kind of. Oh, that sounds very stupid. Well, it's it's um, it's when a soul has a gun, <laughs> it's a man. Um, I'll never live this down. <laughs> a boy, and a we, boy is a gun, is what yeah. I'm saying. Uh, and we should just mention this because again, this is a theme that we're going to be setting up with the next couple of episodes that we talk about. Bird, the idea of Dean McCoppin as a frustrated artist feels very true to Brad Bird as a filmmaker. Where <laughs> again, we're going to talk about this. When we talk about Ratatouille, which is about a rat who wants to cook but is told that he can't. The Incredibles, which is about a superhero who's told he can't be a superhero. And the idea that Bird was an animator who was told he couldn't animate, and the sense that like that spite and that anger 
and that like pent up frustration of no I'm not going to quit you have to fire me uh, seems to drive a surprising amount of Bird's filmography <laughs> the bit where Dean is talking about how nobody appreciates his sculptures and how like when they when they dump crap in front of him it has value people are trying to steal it it has worth but when he turns it into something that is special and meaningful and beautiful and singular in the world nobody values it at all there is a sense of that being like Brad Bird I remember working at Disney in the 70s. I have thoughts about the fox and the hound. Yeah. I'm working in this scrapyard trying to produce art and nobody's going to let me. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, Brad Bird is Edna Mode. Let's be honest here, guys. He doesn't just vo- voice her. And I know we'll talk about this in more detail in The Incredibles, but I mean, and everything that Darren has said about Brad Bird has just like reinvigorated this idea in my mind. But I mean, he literally is Edna Mode. Um, just touching on Dean, because I got really excited that you mentioned Dean. I think Dean is so <laughs> sexy. I really do. Like even when I, I was... mean, I'm glad I'm glad Dee said it because I, I thought I thought Hogarth's mom was really hot. Well. Okay, well, there you go. It's a, it's not just me. They're and, a power couple. Look, they're a strong power couple. Look, they're not animals, so it's not weird. Okay, <laughs> okay no, but, no, but D, like, like D, you have to understand, like, people did find, like, like I'm not saying I did, but like... I don't need, to, I don't need explanation. Like, you no, know, you, you're allowed. You, don't kink shame. Don't, don't kink shame, We don't shame, need to finish D. that sentence. We don't need to finish that sentence. When, when, you, when you begin with people said, now I didn't say, but people say. <laughs> hey, I don't, I don't find... Anyway, I, I don't find Robin Hood. I want to be clear. Now, on, on to Dean. On to Dean. Back to Dean. So I don't find him sexy because he's Brad Bird. I'd rather not associate Brad Bird with him, no. to be honest. Because is it I, Harry Connick Jr.? He well, okay. So guys, you know how Darren like went back and watched like Warner Brothers movies. I was like, I got to watch at least one other Harry Connick Jr. to see <laughs> is he sexier in live action form than Harry cartoon Magic? form. No, he's not. I went for a Hope Floats because that is available on oh. Disney Plus. The Sandra Bullock movie that she got in return for making Speed 2. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, it's it's an odd movie. It's very <laughs> of that like kind of era of romantic dramas that people were kind of testing the waters with. Uh, it's 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 not particularly good. I won't rewatch it, but it was fine. Um, but he's definitely sexier in animated form. So like, okay, let's get into Dean, right? So Dean, as he is immediately established, he is so cool. He's so suave. He's sitting in that coffee shop. But as well, he's really kind of immediately caring. Like you see how he's like trying to look after Hogarth. He could have been like, oh, you annoying kid. He could have been like that, but he doesn't. (laughs) I worry now, is that what Dean would do to a child? (laughs) Definitely. But you've got like the local kook who's going on this rant and Dean is like, I just heard a loud bang in the other room. I'll leave my husband to deal with that. Definitely related to the cats running around. But anyway. um, Damn it, Blade. But like Um. he's he's invested in the arts, but he's also like a hardworking, like blue collared, like not blue collar but you know what I mean like yeah. hardworking man, man you know he's he's picking up all hands, this like yeah. yeah yeah and heavy metal and all that and you know the you are who you choose to be he's like philosophical too man he's got that like kind of he's got the yin yang like dressing gown on him the dressing gown that was literally my next point <laughs> so I maybe also have a crush I on just, Dean but we'll get back I, to the- I love Dean so much Um, and as well I just think those scrappy art scenes are great like they're so mm. there's a lot of simplicity to them and effectiveness but when I was watching the film uh, this time around, it particularly kind of struck me how the scrapyard is really interesting in that it's kind of this safe, enclosed and isolated, but also creative space. Yes. And I think it's really interesting that initially it's somewhere where 
Dean obviously goes to be by himself and to create. And it must have meant it must have been a lot for him to open up that special personal space to Hogarth and the giant. But he does that because he's so great and sexy. <laughs> he does also open it by literally having a squirrel down his pants and unzipping his pants in front of a room full of strangers. Yeah, there are some interesting adult jokes in this between that <laughs> and we've talked about the, the ongoing poop jokes. Even the fact that Mansley, when he first meets Annie, is basically like checking her out. It was a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, he like he literally like looks her up and down when he first meets her. Yeah. And then kind of coughs yeah. like to kind of excuse himself. It's kind of ugh. anyway. Yeah, it's very, it's very uh, alpha male, you know, 1950s thoughts. So, so we're, we're team Dean, we're not team Kent, to be clear. No, I'm team Annie. <laughs> Fair. She's great too. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, Jennifer Aniston, like, is performing really well in this film. Like, she's a great, she's a great maternal figure. Um, and I think she, like, you know how you said she was stunt casting, but I really thought that, you know, she brought, she brought a really great level of, uh, maturity and even though she hasn't really done much animated work or voice acting work she she did it she performed really well because you can tell sometimes when someone doesn't know how to how to sound in a booth and how to work the emotions in a booth um because they haven't had maybe some of the kind of more focused training on that and i thought she pulled it off um really well all right so d graham before we wrap things up anything else we haven't talked about with regards to the iron giant anything that you guys want to talk about anything jumping out at you um I really loved the score and animation, and I don't know if we've talked enough about the score and animation. I worry yeah, that that is very fair. Like the score is by Michael Kamen, um, which is and it's a it is a really really beautiful um, score as well. To be absolutely fair, and the animation is is stunning. Um, it very emotive. But yeah, what I, what I think I actually really like about the animation is the fact that it looks like a 1950s film. It reminds me a lot of the animation style that you would see in Disney films from the era. You know, I'm thinking in particular of, say, uh, Sleeping Beauty, for example. I'm thinking of particularly like 101 Dalmatians, which is from the early 60s, where you have these like really strong Can I interrupt you and... for a second, Darren? Oh, Andrew, you're back oh, there. Right? I am. I am. Sorry. I keep coming in and out. Can I just say that the, the, I, I think what relates to what Darren said about um, Brad Bird and kind of like stuff like Tomorrowland and Incredibles and Eva Mode, I think the thing linking them is Ayn Rand. (laughs) (laughs) We do not have time for that. We will deal with that next Wow. In fact, like the thing about the Iron Giant, which I did, I did mention back at the start of this, which you you may have not heard because you dropped in and out. I did specifically say the Iron Giant is like the least potentially thorny or problematic interpretation of brad bird's exceptionalism narrative in that it's like anybody can be anything they choose to be uh they don't necessarily it's not about talent which is becomes more of a bigger deal when you get to things like the incredibles and things like ratatouille um but sorry graham you want to talk about he is talented though isn't he he's not a normal kid no bird is not a normal kid um, oh, we're talking about Hogarth. No, no, no. Sorry, I'm not talking about Bird. I'm talking about Hogarth. Hogarth is obviously talented, but I don't think he's. I don't think he's not superhuman, and he's, he's al- a gifted child. He's a gifted child, but he's not superhuman, and he's also not a rat who can cook. And he never will be. He just <laughs> works hard. That's really it. <laughs> I just do the stupid homework, and everyone just did the stupid homework. Yeah, thank you. Move up a grade to be bullied just like me. Does yeah. anyone want more coffee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just a hard worker. That's all. That's what. That's what makes him so relatable. Is that he's just. A good kid gets by with that. Uh, he might be a little bit smarter, but like not, not like super, na- like not uh, over the top. 
he's just smart. And I mean, but he's he's smart in the way protagonists are smart, in the way the kid protagonists in these sorts of movies tend to precocious. be smarter than their peers. He's he 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 he's a few years ahead in school. He's one year he's ahead. One I year think ahead. just one year ahead. Yeah, he's only one year ahead. But that's still tremendous. But he's he's ahead the most difficult year. <laughs> I love that Andrew's like, I'm really going to double down on this. I feel, feel, feel like this podcast hasn't been going long enough and it needs another flip. He's a genius, Savan. Um, again, we will, we will talk about, we are going to have to talk about the birdiness. I would rather wait until we got yeah, to the yeah, Incredibles yeah. No, to do incredible, that. Absolutely. Um, but Graham. Um, sorry, you wanted to talk a little bit about the, the animation there. Like, I, I just you, found it really charming. And, you, you know, people... People talking a lot now about how CGI has taken over the landscape, and to I think a lot of emotion has been lost um, in that case when it comes to animated stories. I I don't know what it is, but CGI doesn't always work for me um, because I don't think it's as well expressive as two D animation. And this film is just so wonderfully expressive. Everyone is so uh vibrant and how they're drawn and the you know their characters just really explode uh off the screen it's it's a testament to how great 2d animation is and it's just a constant reminder of how bittersweet it is because we're just losing 2d animation um i think pretty we, much we, every year to year lost it. i think we've lost it in cinema anyway like bird has talked about this where it's like he's and again because i've done research on bird i'm talking primarily about bird's perspective mm. but he's talked about how like <clears throat> animators today in like in animation school, you learn how to do hand drawn animation. It's still taught, but it's taught in the same way that schools used to teach Latin, for example. Where it's like you will never get a job doing this, but this is the foundation of the craft, and you should know it for historical reasons. Mm. And he's talking about how like even when you look at television animation, which is done more done by hand, the theatrical animation is now primarily CGI. But on television, there is still some hand drawn animation or still some line two D animation. And in that case, he's like. Well, in that case, it's mostly flash animation or it's done in software. It's not done traditionally the way that hand-drawn animation was. So, yeah, I, I, I don't... I think I think you're perhaps being optimistic when you describe the idea of we're losing. I mean, the reason... I'd say the reason why I am optimistic is because... And you may have just answered... You know, may have just, like, cut the point there. Um, I watch a lot of anime and a lot of that, to the best of my knowledge, is hand-drawn. Um but even that, I think now that you say that there are overlays of CGI and that there might be on that now. But I mean, like I've I've watched several films, but they don't make obviously the big, the big mainstream audiences that uh, CGI films make these days. And yeah, I I think the medium isn't quite dead, but it is definitely, it's it's going to be, uh, in my optimistic, sadly, opinion. Um, and Dee, what about yourself in terms of the animation of the movie or the soundtrack of the movie? Is there anything you want to say about those? Um, Aside from the fact that Dean looks great animated. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you guys gave me my, my TED talk on <laughs> Dean's <laughs> Um Just to add to about, about the soundtrack, um, something as well I picked up on the documentary. It was only about 20 minutes long and it was from like Warner Brothers. So it was very like, check out this movie, but nobody <laughs> did. But um, one of the things that Brad Bird talked about was how he encouraged Michael Kamen um, who hadn't really done any children or family movies up to that point was to not be afraid to go for it and treat the score with the same maturity that any other uh, film that he, 
you know, that he would have worked on uh, was out. So I think that that was a good idea, you know, not to treat it like an animated movie, but just like a movie um, with the emotional weight that it had. Um, so I think that was a really good uh, thing that he did in terms of the animation and just, um, you know, final points about the movie. Um, I just wanted to point out a few scenes, which I absolutely love. Um, I love the body reassembling scene. So yeah. after the train mm-hmm. accident, by the way, that train track scene, I hard relate to as a fellow perfectionist. I was like, I would totally be in the yeah. Iron Giants position, fixing those tracks, get hit by a train yeah. for the sake of perfection. <laughs> but anyway, um, the body reassembling, <laughs> like it's almost Spielbergian, actually, I think in a way. Um, just in terms of like, you know, um, when you see it all to come together and that kind of twinkly music is gorgeous. And even when, you know, he gets his like little screw into his jaw at the end and kind of readjusts his jaw and then he has that little crinkle in his eye. I just think it's so cute. Um, and then obviously you had that hand fiasco which follows in the house and it's so funny. Um as well, we have to talk about that ending, the beautiful, the tragedy, the wonder uh, of it all, his sacrifice and um, that kind of being, you know, the big emotional finale. But then, of course, what follows is, you know, that he's reassembling again and it's so powerful and like really, really yeah. like you think that you've you're you think that you're finished crying like as he explodes in the so- sky. But no, then you're crying all over again as he's reassembling in the snow and he has that yep. beautiful smile to camera. Um, which they totally robbed for Monsters Inc. Then I bet, um, but uh, it's 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 gorgeous. It's beautiful. So many like scenes in that uh, movie that are so iconic. Uh, the characters which we touched on, I love it. Um, and in terms of the ending as well, like it's this is a children's movie about death, which is quite remarkable. Like they talked about how the hardest scene to do was the one with the deer, where the deer gets shot by a gun because the original plan was for the Iron Giant to accidentally kill the deer. And to realize that it had killed the deer and that to play into its arc of like not wanting to be a weapon and that being like it had killed and it prom- it never wanted to kill again. I feel like that would have felt very uh, Lenny in Of Mice and Men. Like he's like just this clumsy oaf that can't help but I don't think it would have worked. I'm glad they didn't do that. Well, they said that, yeah, they couldn't come back from it was the problem. Like it's like once that once the giant has killed and had this existential crisis, it's very hard to do like goofy screwball comedy with the giant later on. Um, so like, yeah, so we came up with the idea of the, the deer being shot and that tying in again to the gun imagery. But yeah, I, I like the idea that it is a movie about death that you can show a kid as well. Because like the giant reassembles at the end, but like, is the giant going to come back for Hogarth or is the giant going to move on? What, what do we think is going to happen there? Like, is this like a metaphor for, you know, whatever you think happens after death, be it spiritual reincarnation, be it an afterlife? Or is the giant going to reassemble itself and just go visit its best friend again? What do we think is, or does it matter? Yeah, I want the best friend. It is quite a, I'm that simple. I mean, it is quite Christian in a way, you know, the way it talks about like, you know, souls not dying and stuff like that. You know, even the fact that, you know, Hogarth talks about, you know, his mom instilling that in it. They say grace at the table. Um, I thought that that was quite interesting as well. But it's but it's not shoved down your throat either. And it's kind of open to interpretation. Um, but I think that that was kind of maybe some of the intention there, at least. All right, then. Uh, that about wraps it up then, I think, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, anything we haven't discussed already. Andrew, we have not done the regular 250 nonsense. No, no, we'll 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 um, we'll waive the regular two fifty nonsense. I mean, there is the head trauma, so I guess that's a, the, like getting hit by a train. So that's the obligatory Robocop. And reference. I mean, that entire junkyard is arguably food waste. 
um, to be honest, you know? And I mean, yeah, really yeah. Robocop. Arsh. Yeah. Arsh is a food waste. Yes. Obviously. Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the way, guys, I watched, I, we rewatched Robocop for a movie night just the other week and still everyone is blown away by the genius of it, you know? It's so good. It is, it is, it is a master. It is the great American movie, to be fair. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, it's a great American Jesus movie. It's one to watch for <laughs> Easter. It's a great Easter movie. I think Andrew made the argument for. Um, all right, then. What we normally do at the end of the podcast, we ask our guests to recommend something. It could be something they're enjoying at the moment, something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that is bringing you joy in these uncertain times. So to give Graham, to give Dee a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. I mentioned it earlier, and I wasn't going to recommend it, but I thought about it again, and I have been enjoying it an awful lot, is The Last Dance. I know everybody has already seen it in 2020, but if you have not, <laughs> it is incredible. And we, um, Darren just spoke about um, American Jesus. Um, I, 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 I think Michael uh, Jordan um, uh, referred to himself Jesus. as Black Jesus. <laughs> um, so and 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 I think it's it's um, what was the name of that guy from the uh, Indiana Pacers? He, he, he would only call him Black Jesus. You're asking the wrong room, I think. Yeah, you really are. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Anyway, it's, 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 it's probably one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And um, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's and? just in, in, incredible. And each kind of like episode focuses on a, on a, on a particular kind of personality and it's not they're not all jocks even <laughs> though it's a um a, a a sports movie like the 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 coach phil jackson is like into all of this kind of like eastern spirituality and um um native american kind of um philosophy and stuff so it, it it's 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 a fascinating documentary um about uh, and it obviously ties directly back into the iron giant because jordan's big break as a movie star was obviously in space exactly Jam by warner <laughs> brothers animation there you go. Um, which is also like like i'm gonna say that documentary the last dance also deals with the death of michael jordan's father albeit from a very different angle with a very that's that's right and the um steve kerr who who's who who, who is now won um uh, the nba finals as a coach was on that uh, Chicago Bulls team, and his father was 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 also murdered um, uh, through gun violence in uh, Beirut. So there 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 is there is the kind of the the unfortunate thread there as well. Um, other than that, um, a boy is a gun. Um, I I I it made me think of. Made me think of Tyler, the, the creator. I started listening to Igor again, and I just discovered that uh, Dissect, which is a Spotify podcast, are doing season 10 on that album, where they just break down the track, uh, like every every track in minute detail. And it's an interesting album because it's kind of like a culmination of, of some of the promise of... Tyler, the creator, or of Odd Future, where you're kind of like, I think the description they gave um, in one of the episodes was that Tyler, the creator, is both like really promising and also very disappointing, <laughs> you know, where, 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 where you're kind of listening to, the, to some of the earlier music and, and you're like, wow, but also like be better, <laughs> you know, um, 
and 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 I guess the final thing, Hogarth, um, is is the character in the movie. So Wi- William William Hogarth's a rake's progress. Um, if you're ever in London, it's in the John Sloan, John Sloan, uh, museum, which is like in Russell Square. They open it like once a day, where they essentially like um pull back kind of um these eight paintings um and it's 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 kind of like the original storyboard where it shows um a a a a satire of 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 this of this character from kind of arriving um to kind of being um led astray into gambling and prostitution and luxurious living and and coming to his ruin so that's um, a, a, a rake's progress in Sir John Soane's museum. Um, so yeah, that's those three things. And I don't think anybody can hear me because I'd say it's probably... We can hear you. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. We've actually just been listening to you. Um, yeah. It's an unusual experience. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> um, sorry, I, I, did, I had nothing to interject with there. No, um, no, I, I, I did. Do. I would wonder, doesn't everything open once a day? No, um, what, uh, it's for a very short time each day. Very profound. That, that's very much what if, what if a soul had a gun, it's, 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 it's for a very short period. Because, be, be, because the, the, um... Oh, okay. You know a triptych where, where like, you, you open kind of like a, a window kind of on a, a, a painting... And there's two paintings kind of like either side and there's the one in inside. Yeah. It's sort of like that. There's oh. one there's one room where um it it just kind of all turns over and there's like eight William Hogarth uh, paintings. Um so it's it's um yeah, but it's pretty cool. It's a, it's an interesting museum and as 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 well. Sounds like they went whole hog on that on that actor. Hey. <laughs> Hogarth. What kind of a name is Hogarth? Fair. <laughs> Did you just say fair? Yeah. God, it was Hogarth. All right, Graham. What would you recommend if it's not the name Hogarth? Apparently, <laughs> I would recommend uh, what I'm currently watching is uh, if we're looking at uh, you know interesting children. Uh, I'd say uh, the Midnight Club. I'm currently watching that right now on Netflix. Uh, Mike Flanagan show. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm a fan of much of his work. Pretty much all of his work I've seen so far. Um, watching it with Breed uh, for the spooky season that we're in. It's quite a spooky show. Um, also, I am still watching One Piece. It's not finished. <laughs> uh, it's never going to be finished. I'm at episode 824 uh, of possibly a thousand. I don't know. It's keep. It just keeps going. I mean, the, the, the author has stated that he's in the last... Three years of the of of the of writing it, so we're gonna see the end and potentially the next three years, which will be another god, another six hundred possibly, sorry, nine hundred episodes. Wait, what? Yeah, three hundred episodes a year, one a day, basically. Oh, not well. No, sorry, no, sorry, no. I'll take that back. Sorry, a hundred and a hundred and seventy. We'll say, we'll say, one hundred seventy. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but it is still to churn that out that kind of work is on a weekly basis is is nuts. It's insane. It, yes. Yeah, which is considering the fact that each issue, each chapter of his work is twenty four pages, and you can imagine how that's broken down into panels. So you can go nuts with your brain there. Jesus, he sounds uh, like a real Brad Bird. This guy. He, he, I think he's far more optimistic. <laughs> 
Uh, I love I love how Graham's saying kind of you could go nuts with your brain there, and Graham's like that's pretty straightforward maths. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> Darren's uh, like, got it, okay. <laughs> and then I'm also also watching. Thank uh, you, Ed. <laughs> I was watching Taskmaster, which I highly recommend. Uh, Bake Off. I'm sure everyone's tuning in for that and going up and down with their feelings. And after a decade-long wait, another anime that I was in love with when I was younger uh, called Bleach is back. It's on Disney+. Plus. Disney actually bought the rights to an anime. God knows what that can only mean for the future. Um, and yeah, I've been watching Bleach for the last two weeks. It's its first two episodes are out. And it's, I'm, I'm very happy for it to come back. It's a gorgeously animated show. Um, about, Would you say the animation style is very clean? Uh, yes, actually, it is. It is. It is super clean. Like there's, there is not like uh, I don't, I don't even know where to go with the metaphor. I just yes, it's very clean. Um, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, that's it. And D, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Um, yeah, so a few things. I suppose I was kind of thinking about um, stuff that was related to the podcast today on the Iron Giant. So one of the things that kind of struck me, that's something that has uh, similar themes. You have a boy who is being bullied at the heart of it, a large fictional creature that he turns to and also dealing with grief, a monster calls, um, which also made me cry. Both the book and the movie um, would highly recommend um, if you like the Iron Giant. This has kind of a similar uh, themes goes in different directions with them um but really uh incredible movie starring liam neeson as the monster yeah that's right yeah yeah and uh felicity jones as uh the boy's mother sigourney weaver is great in it as well um and then i was thinking as well in terms of we were talking a bit about animation and you know whether it's like behind its time ahead of its time etc and one of the series actually I wanted to mention is Invincible because I think it's just so mm. ahead of everything else that's going on in the superhero genre and it's it's almost kind of ruined superhero movies for me because everything is just so pale and crap in comparison uh, my husband and I have watched this season twice now like in the space of a year which we never do um and we'll probably watch it again before the next season comes out um so if you haven't seen invincible and if you're like a fan of you know uh, i think the boys is up there as well in terms of just being so far ahead but invincible it's almost better i think in some ways um i do love that like like jeff bezos as the head of amazon has basically made two two superhero shows about how maybe Lex Luthor's arch nemesis superhero isn't a good guy underneath it all. I do love that. Like that's a big recurring motif in Amazon's output. Yeah. Sorry, D. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a fair point. But um, yeah, I just, I just think it's like so brilliant and it kind of, it kind of does make me very emotional actually as well. There's um, some relationship goals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really? <laughs> I don't know. What? I don't know about what? that. Um, <laughs> you search. Uh, I just, and, and, I love that Andrew, you've seen Invincible, have you? Then I have, yeah. I've seen the whole thing. I'll just say, uh, yeah, I've read the whole comic book franchise series. All twenty-two. You stand yeah. by. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love that. I just love that the fact that, like, I don't know if Dean knows this. You know, the next season is like twenty-two episodes. Oh, really? Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, they've, they've already, oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that's why it's taking so. That's why it's taking so long because you know the first season was only eight. 
And now season two is going to be 22 episodes. I'm so glad about that because 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 um, Ivan and I have this inside joke where like every few weeks he'll be like, just just call him, just call him. Because like because like I work in like um, the industry and stuff, he <laughs> he acts like I have all these like insider yeah, contacts and to just call them and tell them to release the new season already. You, you, you know, the two of you could read the comic book. Fantastic. No, no, because I don't want I don't want stuff to be given away, and I like I like watching the I like watching the series. No, 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 I'll just watch it. Yeah, you like watching the people explode. I do. <laughs> I do love the D's. Like I, I, I could call them up and and you know get them to release it early, and I'm like I, twenty two episodes of this. I I don't know if I can do that. I oh, and I think that's going to be the standard going forward. I'm like hook it to my veins. I can't wait. Um, and then my last, actually, I have I have a mini recommendation. Quick before my last recommendation. Andrew, have you seen the Redeem team yet? Because if you watch The Last Dance... I have not. Is it good? Yes. And if you enjoy The Last Dance, definitely watch that. And obviously, you know, uh, listeners, if you um, have seen The Last Dance and you're looking for kind of a last, like, you know, little adrenaline rush after that, um, Ivan and I watched The Redeemed Team this week. And we knew it wasn't going to be like, it's it's obviously just a one-off feature documentary, um, but very enjoyable and very interesting um and really well put together. I'm not I, I, I didn't really look up whether it was the same filmmakers involved and stuff. Um but really liked it. Um and then my last recommendation would be The Banshees Vinishiran, which I was chatting about on the radio tonight and it's been one of my favourite movies of the year so far. Um We may have covered it last week. There's like a 50-50 oh, really? chance that we have covered this the week before this episode. Okay, releases. well retrospectively um It would be great if we got you on to talk about I it know. and now you give recommendations. Oh well <laughs> Um, this is D from the past, <laughs> from the future. Past. I don't know. Um, yeah. In any case, um, I absolutely love it. And I don't want to talk about it too much because it is the kind of movie you should go in as blind as possible watching. Um, but it's utterly brilliant. Um, all right. In terms of recommendations for myself, because we had a big discussion about this movie. Is it appropriate for kids? Is it kid friendly? Uh, two quick recommendations. Building off that very tension right there. Uh, the first of which is... Uh, and this is a bit late because Halloween was, I think, about a week ago now. Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, um, Ooh, which is the yes. online web series, has now got a six-episode season on Channel 4. Uh, you can watch it in its entirety. Uh, it is amazing. I watched it during the week. Uh, it is, frankly, astounding and stunning. And I had a really, really great and uncomfortable time with it. Uh, <laughs> all of those episodes are basically longer than all of the shorts combined. So I was kind of nervous about how they were going to make six of those work. But they do. It is unsettling, creepy, brilliant, surrealist, uh, and I wholeheartedly and unequivocally kind of recommend that. In terms of other recommendations for myself, like we were talking about movies that make people cry. Uh, if listeners have not seen Pete's Dragon, David Lowry's uh, live oh, action adaptation. I love that. Um, that is, yeah, yeah, that is a beautiful film that has been sorely underseen. Uh, yeah. We mentioned, you know, watching stuff with parents and making people cry. That was a Mooney family Christmas movie one year and it made everybody cry and it was amazing. Um, and it, Darren? No, Darren just watched people crying and found it very heartwarming. Um, was, there, yeah. was there someone who was really good at his job? <laughs> yeah, well, Robert who got, Redford. Who got to go home at the end of it. I was just talking to Graham about this. I am fonder of Halloween kills than most people and it dawned yeah. on me that Halloween Kills is at its core a movie about a guy who is really good at his job who just wants to go home. 
And I was like, that must be why that movie connected with me on some level that I didn't register. Um, so yeah, I, I would I would recommend that. And just one more recommendation here very quickly. Uh, we mentioned at the start there that one of the early projects that kind of Brad Bird like cut his teeth on after he left Disney was a show reel based around Will Eisner's The Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is a comic strip that ran for decades uh, through the 30s and the 50s. It has been reprinted in these wonderful hardback collections. I actually own most of them downstairs, with the exception of the ones that Eisner didn't do because he was too busy killing Nazis in the Second World War. But basically, it is a wonderful piece of comic strip art. It's a wonderful study of movement in art. It's creative. It's innovative. It's brilliant. It's playful. And you can really see its influence on Brad Bird as a storyteller. Uh, Bird's like one of the greatest animators when it comes to movement. And The Spirit is one of the best comic books when it comes to movement as well. So if you get a chance uh, to check any of those strips out, I think some of them are available for free on the internet from DC, from Warner Brothers. Uh, feel free to have a look. Some of them are horribly racist, just to flag that ahead there. Uh, but other than that, they are just brilliant and beautiful pieces of pop art. <laughs> All right, then. So if listeners are looking for a bit more D, a bit more Graham in their lives, we're going to be doing... You'll be joining us in the next two weeks. We're joining us for Incredibles next week. You'll be joining us for Ratatouille the week after that. But in the meantime, D, where can they find you? Watch out. Where are you up to? Um, yeah, I'm kind of a bit all over the place. Twitter is a place to find me probably at Deirdre Malumby, all one word. That's at D-E-I or D or E-M-O-L-U-M-B-Y. Um, I am on Instagram as well, just not very active on that, to be honest. Um, and LinkedIn, I suppose, if you're <laughs> so <laughs> if inclined. You're yeah, if you're a grown up. <laughs> um, well, I do put like my um, radio segments and podcasts on that as well. Uh, but yeah, that's where I'm at. I always feel, yeah, that's the thing. I feel like if I got a LinkedIn account, I would be a grown up. That is, yeah. that is my big fear. I feel like I'd finally be an adult. You, um, you'd be almost too grown up, Darren. Says the man who owns a house. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's the one thing up. that keeps your 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 youth intact. My inner child alive yeah. is not being on LinkedIn. Um, but Graham, what? Yeah, where are you up to? Where can we find you? Uh, I'm also a bit all over the place. Um, I currently have an article in uh, Film in Dublin. Uh, which is a wonderful Irish um, website um, uh, for an interview with Paul Feig on his new film, uh, The School for Good and Evil. Oh. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I interviewed him. It was great. It was great fun. He was a lovely man. And that's as much as I'm going to talk. That was shot here, right? It was. It was, shot, uh, it was shot here or shot in Belfast. I think it was shot in Belfast for some of the locations. Charlize Theron's in it, yeah? If I remember she is. So is Kerry Washington and Lawrence Fishburne, Kit Young, uh, Michelle Yeoh in a really thankless role, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, I interviewed him. It was really great. It was really great interviewing Paul Feig. I really like Paul Feig. Uh, that, that, that's all I'll say about the film. And then uh, you can also find me on Game Air uh, with all our reviews. We, we have a ton of reviews out right now because October has become the new September regarding games. Um, I love that schedule creep. It's just, it's just rolls it's four just weeks. It's just insane. It's yeah. like, hey, September used to be the really big thing. Now October is. And uh, I'm currently reviewing a very highly anticipated game that I cannot talk about any more than that because I, uh, that, that's as much as I can say. Uh, is the embargo, is, so if the, is the embargo up before the end of October? Uh, no. Okay, then you can Yeah, so I'll just say I'm more. reviewing a game right now that I'm very happy to be reviewing. And... Uh, I'm on Twitter like I said I'm on Twitter Graham. it's Grand Theft Auto 6 yeah, yeah. Graham, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter at Graham Geek Ira and um, I'm also at Scanon uh, where I still review and I think 
that's it. Yeah, that's it. So that'll be. Oh, and I'm also on Twitch because I um, also play games on Twitch every couple of weeks. Cool. So you yeah. can scratch that Twitch. Um... <laughs> All right then. You can follow the podcast at, at the two fifty. That is as much response as that remark is going to get. So yes, we're <laughs> at the two fifty. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes. We're wherever good podcasts are found. Thank you so much to Graham. Thank you so much to D. This went on far, far longer than it was supposed to. Uh, we will be back next week. Take care, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Bye.